It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. In the field, number 70! We're talking about practice. Hello, you play to win the game. The Yankees are champions of baseball. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Three, two, one, happy two. No time on the clock, and the Patriots have won Super Bowl 36. Jordan open, Chicago with the lead! Worldwide Sports Radio Network presents Below the Mark. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Below the Mic. And remember, you can call us at 631-965-4990. Again, the number is 631-965-4990. And remember, you can reach us by going to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Again, it's www dot worldwide sports radio.com and you can follow us if you guys don't have our app all you have to do is go into the ios system of android or well, i'm sorry the ios for apple you go to wwsrn or if you go to android all you have to do is go to worldwide sports radio network download our app all our clips our live shows are on there our live audio our stories every single thing is on the app and as you guys know we have our friends from, uh, I'm sorry, PSO, PSO Sports, joining us today as we are going to be doing debate, war, debate wars. I'm sorry. The first sports debate wars we've ever had here at the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the first time they have done debate wars over there on their terms. So if you guys want to follow them, all you have to do is go to prosportsoutlook.com. Again, it's prosportsoutlook.com. Or you can follow follow them or search them on Instagram or Twitter by going to at PSO underscore sports. What's going on, guys? Hey, how's it going, Happy to be here. We're very happy that you're joining us. And uh, we have a great show, a great debate lined up for you guys. I'm sure you guys have some great questions for us. So we're very intrigued on moving forward and what you guys are going to be talking about. So why don't you tell the fans a little bit about yourselves before we get into the show? Hey, man. First, debate wars. You know we got to do a bit. Appreciate you guys having us on. Uh, so a little bit about us. You know, we're uh, the ones that started Pro Sports Outlook, trying to represent the front office for fans, help people kind of better understand and enjoy the game. And, uh, yeah, we're really happy to be here today and looking forward to getting into some of these debates. Absolutely. So what we're going to do for all the fans out there that don't know what debate wars are, these are the rules of the game. Each and every team is going to have three minutes to argue their points. Three minutes. And after the argument, it will be posted on our social medias, and you can vote who won that debate. If you guys don't vote who won that debate, well, obviously, after the show, send it out to all the different outlets, and uh, we can argue our points through our debates from the show. So each each and every person, because obviously each each side has three minutes, uh, each person has about uh, about a, what was it? A minute, a minute and a half. A minute and a half uh, to argue their points to each debate. We are going to get into NBA, NFL, and MLB. That is it. And anywhere from the years of uh, 2000 all the way to today. All right? You guys got it? Yeah. yeah. By the way, who's your pal over there? Quiet man over there. 
<laughs> I'm Brandon Hurt from the Executive Vice President of Post Sports Outlook. Uh, I also appreciate you guys having us on today. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to Absolutely. And looking forward to arguing our points. So I'm going to tell you what. You guys could decide who wants to go first in our, uh, on their arguments of the debates. Do you want to ask your question or do you want us to ask our question first? Well, you know, it's your show. I feel like it's, it's only right, right if you start us off. Okay, so we'll ask you our first question. All right. Speedy, play some music. Put some music on the background, obviously. Mm-hmm. Tell me if it's too loud, guys. Go ahead, play it, Speedy. Too loud? Good. Good. Lower it. Lower it. I'll, I'll tell you. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, keep going. Keep going. There we go. Right there. So now you know where it is, Speedy. Okay. Speedy. All right. Who had the better MVP season? 2013 Peyton Manning or 2018 Patrick Mahomes? Ooh. Okay. Are you starting us off or your well, time begins going. now? It's your turn. You, you guys, you guys go first. Okay, giving you right the opportunity. Man, that's, that's tough. tough. I mean, obviously, recently, recency bias will say, you know, Mahomes with his 5,050, but I'm pretty sure Peyton Manning also went 5,050. And he started off on the right foot, going seven touchdowns on that Thursday night home opener. Who could forget it? And uh, obviously, you know, that season didn't end the way they wanted to in the Super Bowl, getting blown out by the Seahawks. But I would say Peyton Manning in the season 2013. I mean, setting the record for most touchdowns in a season. And just completely dicing every opponent in the face. It wasn't like Patrick Mahomes where he dominated with, you know, athleticism and arm strength. He would do it from a mental side of things and be able to read defenses and understand, you know, where his team had the advantage and then just completely take it apart. And it wasn't like Patrick Mahomes who had the benefit of having Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, and Reed calling the plays. I mean, Big Manny was doing it with guys like Ramirez Thomas, and I believe he had a main standard that yeah, I mean, pick it right off the bat. Uh, this is probably a, what, a 37-year-old Peyton Manning. This is very developed towards the end of his career, Peyton Manning. And yeah, like Bob said, he broke the touchdown record. And compared to a younger Patrick Mahomes, who's really in his first two years as a starter. But that Peyton Manning year was, was a crazy year. I don't think uh, many quarterbacks have had the opportunity to even bat those 55 touchdowns and 5,500 passing yards in throw. So I have no opinion as well. All right, I guess it's our time then. So we're gonna we're gonna decide for Patrick Mahomes and Patrick Mahomes. I think yeah, you're right. Peyton Manning probably had a little bit less help, but let's not forget he didn't have some talented receivers. Demarius Thomas was a good receiver, great receiver for a while. He had Emmanuel Sanders. He had definitely some help. He definitely he, he definitely made some of those guys for sure. But Patrick Mahomes doing it in the circumstances he did it is his first year starting in the league, and he's already an MVP that quickly. That was his first year. He sat behind Alex Smith for a year. The breakthrough he had was just really much more impressive. But teams, again, you, Peyton Manning does a lot of different things, but teams didn't know how to game plan for Patrick Mahomes. And Patrick Mahomes didn't know how to game plan for these defenses a lot of the time, too. And for him to put up an MVP caliber season like he did in that 2018 season was very impressive. I think schedule-wise, it was very similar. Both divisions were probably about the same at the time. So that really cancels out. And I think the receivers, too, yeah, okay, maybe the Chiefs are a little better, but they're not as far off as you think with what the Broncos had with the running game, better running game, I would say a better offensive line. And the Chiefs, while they might have had better receivers, it's not by much because, again, those guys are not far behind. And I think Mahomes, in those circumstances, really just did a, a tremendous job 
in doing it in so many different ways too, just bursting on the scene as quickly as he did and staying consistent the whole year. That is next to impossible for a rookie quarterback. Obviously, he's a second-year guy, but that's next to impossible for him, and he did it in an MVP form season just out of nowhere. So I think for, for me, it's Patrick Mahomes, and Errol, you can add on some more. I, I would say Patrick Mahomes, too, and I'll, I'll tell you why Patrick Mahomes. Speedy said it right. He's a younger quarterback. This is his rookie season, really rookie season. His other rookie season was, what, one game, two games that he played with Kansas City. So this was his opportunity to really prove himself. And their numbers are very, very similar. Peyton Manning threw 12. I think Patrick Mahomes threw 12 interceptions that year to Peyton Manning's, I think, 10, if I'm not mistaken. They were very similar in a, very, in a, in a lot of ways. Remember, Peyton Manning is not a rookie. This is a guy that has been in the league for a very, very long time, played for the Indianapolis Colts. He, he's done it strategically year in and year out. With Patrick Mahomes coming to a team, new offense, new style of game, doesn't know who his top wide receiver is, trying to transform the team to an offensive style of game. When Andy Reid came to the team, they were a defensive style of team. He, tra- he really tra- changed everything when he came to the team, brought in Patrick Mahomes, Alex Smith came to the team. So... I look at both quarterbacks. Both quarterbacks had sensational years. Both of them are MVP seasons. But again, Patrick Mahomes did it in a time where the game was completely changed. It was a lot faster. The game was a little bit more um, speedy. And, and, and just really the running games, both teams had very good running games in that year. And I, I just feel like when you compare Peyton Manning to Mahomes, 2013 Peyton Manning to the 2017-2018 Mahomes, you can't really compare them because one was a rookie practically and the other one was a veteran of, what, 13, 14 years. So, Time's up. Is this a good answer to rebuttal on that though? You don't have to put the music on. After the debates, you shut the music down. There you go. No, you, you, had, your, you had your rebuttal. So you had your chance. You had your three minutes. Now you had a, we had our three minutes, so you have to ask us a, a question now. Okay. So there is no rebuttal. So, guys, after that, they're going to be posted, and there is no rebuttal to the arguments because we're going to go from each debate question to each debate question. After the show, like the last half an hour, maybe we can go back to the question and argue and debuttle some, uh, some of the other questions. So. Okay. okay. So, so, point, that was with the dad and that but that's fine. You know, it was, uh, that was a good first run. Um, I guess moving on to our first question. So, with the Last Dance documentary, you know, obviously taking over the sports world these last few weeks, uh, MJ has been a prominent topic, and I don't think anyone would debate that MJ is the greatest scorer of all the time. But other than Michael Jordan, who is the greatest scorer in NBA history? Or the great offensive player, I should say, in NBA mm-hmm. You got the music, Speedy? It's coming. There it is. All right, so you want All to right, go I'm going to go first. Lower the music a little bit. It's too loud. There we go. Okay, so my argument is it's LeBron James. You can argue Kobe Bryant. You can argue all the offensive players. We can go from Pistol Pete to Jerry West to Carl Malone to even... Um, Magic Johnson or Larry Bird this guy especially what LeBron James has done over the years he has every single practically playoff record lower the music a little bit Speedy it's too loud bring it down you know what shut the music off because you you can't handle the music oh god you're you're terrible with the music alright it's LeBron James LeBron James with his scoring records everything that LeBron James has done 
I, I understand his his, his three point shooting isn't the top of the, isn't on the top of the food chain when you talk about Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, but he has become a better three point shooter as his as his career has gone by. And and LeBron James he dominates in every asset asset of the game: defense, offense, rebounding. All those styles of games are all a part of offense. So I, I, I think it's LeBron James. You can't really compare Jerry West and any of those guys because that was the time of defense. Now it's a starting time of the offense. And LeBron James and Michael Jordan, even though you people would try to compare both of them in so many similar ways because they dominated leagues at the time that they have, LeBron James has done it in a different style of way, in a different game, a change of a game, the offensive style of game, to Michael Jordan where they, it was the tail end of the defensive style of game in the 90s. So it would be LeBron James. Yeah, and also you got to mention LeBron can also score in so many different ways where you see a lot of these guys that you consider who is the top scorer when you look at today's game, guys like Steph Curry and James Harden. They're mainly shooters. LeBron can score shooting and driving to the hoop. He could score at the free throw line. Again, his free throw record is not amazing it's a it's about 78 percent for his career but again he can score in so many different ways and again that with all the different eras and the changes in the eras that he's played in i think he really has evolved with the game he became a better three-point shooter when he needed to be he became a better mid-range shooter in miami when he needed to be and elevate his game and again with cleveland he really just had to do everything because he was mainly the only guy on that team the next best player on that team was zagundris ilgaskas and that was more towards the end of his career when when lebron was there so he, he wasn't really dealing with a lot, so I think it is absolutely LeBron James, just so consistent, so durable for a long time, and really rarely has, again, a bad game in his, uh, in his career. All right, Go so, ahead, guys. Yeah, I think when you talk about longevity and defense and rebounding, you know LeBron James has all those things. That's what makes him one of the greatest players overall. But this question is about offense, strictly the offensive side of the ball. And when it comes to offense, four things come to mind about how a player dominates on the offensive end. Obviously, shooting is probably the most important, especially in today's game. But then you also have to take into account a player's ball handling ability, how they can get past defenders, their finishing at the rim, and then their ability to also get their teammates involved, which obviously LeBron James is excellent at. But when you take into account the shooting, the playmaking, the passing, and the finishing. I think Steph Curry has to be considered the greatest offensive player besides Michael Jordan, especially considering he completely changed the game. There's very few players in the history of the game of basketball that can say that they changed the entire way the game is played, and Steph Curry is one of those few players because of how dominant he was on the offensive side of the ball. It made everyone in the entire league realize, hey, we need to start doing this stuff too. Yeah, this this could be a tough question because there's a lot of errors that were that were going across. I mean, like you guys said, kind of that Wilt Chamberlain, Oscar Robinson, those were the game changers of that type of area by triple doubles and obviously Wilt Chamberlain scoring on all different types of ways. But when I think of a game changer at this time, I say Steph Curry. Like Rob said, the dribbling, the passing, the shooting effect, and he all does this as one of the most unathletic players in the NBA, which is the complete opposite of what LeBron James does. I think Steph Curry's complete skill set is just very impressive in its own. And his ability to score and shoot threes has really changed the way that this uh, this era, this, gener- this generation thinks about playing basketball with throwing up threes, dribbling around, step backs. So I think Steph is probably the best offensive player of all time outside of Michael Jordan. All righty. So next question for us. We're going to shift to baseball now. Who is the better player of this generation? David Ortiz or Albert Pujols? Didn't we ask that question? Or did they ask that question? No, they asked okay, it. Okay, okay. 
and you will start in about five seconds. Was... No, guy, let him go. Go uh, ahead. Your time begins now. All right. Well, for me to uh, be honest about who I'm going to argue, you know, it's right there on the wall. So we got Big Poppy in the background. And that's because he's a legend. This guy is probably the most clutch hitter of all time. Sure, Albert Pujols might have the stats, he might have the numbers, he might have the production because he was a, literally a complete machine during that decade of dominance. But when it came to the question of who is the greatest hitter of his generation, when I think of greatness, I think of what did they do when it mattered most? And nobody stepped up when it mattered most more than David Ortiz. In the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth, there's not a hitter in baseball that you rather have at the plate than David Ortiz. And of course, your argument is going to be the fact that he's purely a designated hitter, and that Albert Pujols is also a fewer. Well, it's not like Albert Pujols is racking up gold glove awards. Like, he just plays first base, scooping balls and catch and, you know, fielding simple ground balls. So I don't really think his defensive acumen was really much better than David Ortiz. And the fact that David Ortiz had that clutch factor at such a higher level than any other player, and he also had, you know, fantastic production in World Series championships and match, I think, put him above yeah, when it comes to two players with similar production like uh, Albert Pujols and David Ortiz, you really had to look to the postseason, like Rob said. You really go with the players that make big-time plays and big-time moments of the game. Yeah, David Ortiz is on better teams than Albert Pujols. Yeah, he got more opportunities to do so, but that doesn't pass over the fact that this man went back and back and back and over and over and over again and made big-time plays at big-time moments. So I would have to say David Ortiz, especially for his postseason success. And I'd also like to add real quick the fact that David Ortiz is by far unquestioned the greatest designated hitter of all time, whereas the first base Edgar hitter, Martinez. I'm sorry? Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez is close, but let's not act like he's on the same level of David Oh, Ortiz. he's definitely on the same level. Absolutely yeah, on the same level. Yeah, getting on base or getting off Mariano Rivera. Edgar Martinez is the greatest DH of all time. There's not even a question. It's not even an argument. Uh, that you argue. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry. Keep going, though. You're Go ahead. Go all right. Speed. So I'm going to take Albert Pujols in this. I think playing in the field does matter. And about the gold gloves, he won a lot of them in the beginning of his career. He never won one in the outfield. That's why they ended up moving him to first base. But Albert Pujols did win gold gloves in his career. He was one of the best defensive first basemen in his prime. It, yeah, it fell off later in his career, but since he went to the angels, but again, so, so did everything else. And our pools was a fantastic defender. When, when you look at his goal gloves and his range at, at first base in his prime. And then you also got to factor into the fact that he's just a more well-rounded hitter. He hit for batting average. He won two batting titles. He won two MVPs. I know Ortiz won one too, but he was just a more well-rounded hitter. They had to shift David Ortiz before overshifts were really that big of a thing. And again, Albert Pools, better opposite field power, just I think a more well-rounded hitter as a whole when you look at it. So I think from that standpoint, you have to take Albert Pujols. And again, let's let, it's not like Albert Pujols is Bryce Harper where he's bad in the playoffs. He had some great postseason numbers too. He won two titles with the St. Louis Cardinals in a National League that, in an NL Central as a whole, that was a very tough division for a while. So when you look at all the combiningness with that, Albert Pujols has to be the guy. Plus, I think Ortiz had more talented lineups around him too with the Red Sox, especially in 04, than what Pujols had with the Cardinals. They were more of a pitching team. What is that music in the background with that sound, Speedy? Come on, man. Shut that off. Jeez. What was that? All that crap. Anyways, it's Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols, 
who last year had 93 RBIs in a bad season, patted 244, 23 home runs. This is a, three, a career 300 hitter, three-time MVP. David Ortiz never won an MVP in the league. Okay, he won playoff MVPs. He never won N N MVP. This is a rookie of the year, two-time World Series champion, six-time Silver Slugger, two-time Gold Glove winning, battle title, batting title, three-time Major League Player of the Year. I mean, this guy was the best player in the league for almost ten years in the National League, even before he went to the American League, the Anaheim Angels. This guy was as dominant as anybody. And you talk about his career as a defensive and offensive player. He changed the generation. When you try to compare right-handed hitters. How many right-handed hitters in, in Major League history could you compare to him? There are not many. Vladimir Guerrero, there are not many of them. So what he has done, especially in the time that he has done it, when it's a left, a power lefty league, really it is. When you go up and down the power hitters, David Ortiz and all of those guys, and even talk about the, the power right now in the league. It, it, it all comes mainly from the left side. I know there's Aaron Judge and John Carlos Stanton, but there are more left-handed power hitters in the Major League and it's been like that since the 80s then right handed it's dave it, it's albert or uh, i'm sorry albert pujols by far it's not even close all right next question for us all right all right so our next question is we're going to go back to the nba and we're going to ask you who you think is the most underrated player in the national basketball association oh, that's a good Ooh. question that's a good question. You want me to start on this one? Go ahead. I know, I know you'll fight for this guy, too. Yeah. I'm going to say Damian Lillard. I think Damian Lillard is a guy that's constantly disrespected when you look at point guards in the league. Everyone talks about Russell Westbrook and Steph Curry, James Harden, who's, again, technically not a point guard but can play the point guard position. I think it's definitely, when you look at it, Damian Lillard gets disrespected all the time, probably because of the market he's on, the, the team he's on, which has been good at times. CJ McCollum, they, they've had some good players, but it's not really the same loaded team. It's not that big, flashy names. But again, he's just as good as all of them, if not maybe the best of all. He could do everything. He's an underrated defender, I think. Not a world-class defender, but I, I think definitely an underrated defender. He could score from anywhere. He's a great free-throw shooter. And again, I think he's a tremendous just all-around player. He can shoot with the threes just as long as Steph Curry can. Maybe not on the same consistent basis, but just as long in terms of the range. And when you look at Damian Lillard as a whole, he's a great passer with, again, a team that really doesn't have the luxury of getting these big free agents and spending like the Warriors do, like the Rockets have done with their other point guards, Kyrie Irving, and with the Cavs when he was with LeBron. They don't have that kind of luxury and draw because it's Portland. So I think it's definitely Damian Lillard. I'm going to go with Damian Lillard, too. It's, it's, it's funny because me and Speedy didn't even talk about this. It's Damian Lillard, five-time All-Star, four-time All-NBA player, uh, two, 2012-2013 All-Rookie all team. This guy was has been a dominant player ever since he came to the league. And remember, he was traded in that Nets, dra uh, Nets trade. He wasn't even a lottery pick. He was a 19th, 18th pick in the draft. So nobody expected Damian Lillard to become the player that he is. Career 24-point scorer. I mean, look at his numbers. His numbers, field goal percentage, for over 43%. Great three-point shooter, almost at 39%. For a guy that plays in Portland, where it's, a, to me, it's not a division. It's really not... Um, the, the Western Conference, you don't even think of the Portland Trailblazers. You think about the Lakers. You talk about the Clippers. You talk about all those teams right now, the Golden State Warriors. You can never even put Damian Lillard in the, the same vicinity as guys like Steph Curry because he doesn't play in a big market. 
like uh, like uh, Golden State. Golden State really is one of the biggest markets and one of the most underrated markets in professional sports. Damian Lillard plays in one of the smallest markets. And, he, and besides C.J. McCollum, who's he played with? He hasn't played with anybody. And no free agents go over there. What, Carmelo Anthony? Give me a break. I mean, seriously, the way he has dominated the league at the point guard position, this guy is one of the most underrated players I've seen in my lifetime. And he is definitely, in my eyes, the best point, best best all around point guard besides Russell Westbrook in the NBA. Yeah, I think uh, Damian Lillard is a hell of a player, and I argue the thing he's the second best point guard in the NBA. And I think he's gained a lot of traction from his big playoff shots and his playoff performances. I'm gonna go with a great player that hasn't received as much um, notoriety, and that's Bradley Beal. Uh, Bradley Beal was one of three players to ever average 30-plus points, assist-plus assist, while being under the age of 27. The other two players are LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And thinking about last year, Bradley Beal was one of three players to ever finish the season averaging 25-plus points, 5-plus assist, and 5-plus rebounds. Bradley Beal is also the biggest all-star snub of all time, while averaging over 30 points per game this year and still not making the all-star team. And even though Washington is supposed to be a big market, it's really not a big market. They don't really get any free agents. They've struggled to gain a lot of traction as a franchise besides the top three picks like Bradley Beal and John Wall that they've had. And the way that Bradley Beal's game has transformed over these last two years without having John Wall on the court is just magnificent. I mean, he's gone from averaging 23 points along John, alongside John Wall's last full year to averaging 25 and a half last year to 30 this year. And I think a lot of people just hate on Bradley Beal because he is on the Wizards and the Wizards don't win many games, but that should not deny the fact of the numbers that he's putting up and the way he's doing it as efficiently as he is. Yeah, and for me, I don't even know that Damian Lillard could be eligible for this. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's made five All-Stars. He's recognized clearly as one of the best point guards in the game. I think he has the notoriety Maybe not necessarily that he deserves, because, I mean, that ice-cold dagger that he hit, I think, put him on that pedestal where, like, people are recognizing the, you know, effectiveness that he has. Um, But when it comes to Bradley Beal, I mean, like Brandon said, this is the biggest all-star snub of all time. The fact that this man is doing something that only LeBron James and Michael Jordan have ever done, and he didn't even make the all-star team, that is absurd. And that just shows how underrated this guy is when he's on the floor. And now that he has John Wall not alongside him, to play, he's clearly showing that his game is just as good as any shooting guard in the league, and he's just taking over games. He's putting up 40 pieces consecutively, and if it wasn't for the worst defensive pieces around him, he would probably be able to carry them to one of the eight, seven spots in the East. Um, But just his ability to affect the game in multiple ways and versatility, as Brandon noted in his uh, ability to score 30 points, have five assists, have five rebounds. He's an all-around player and deserves much more um, you know, respect that he's getting around And you could put that person through. Go ahead, put him through. Uh, we, we actually have a caller before we go. Uh, before we go to break, we'll put the, the caller on. You guys could probably hear the caller. Who are we speaking to? Ken. Ken, what's going on, my friend? You guys hear Ken? Maybe, maybe oh, the solution is, since this is going to last like three years, Corona, that you guys order food. We have it sent over by remote. And then we pay for it, and then we have a meal by Zoom. What does this have anything to do with the debate wars we're having with your chicken and turkey? man, that might be the solution for that. <laughs> we're debating, and you're calling about a turkey dinner. <laughs> Maybe he has to just show the PSO guys all the, uh, all the history. If we already had it, 
You see? Oh, my God, Kenny. Why would you call this show when we're debating about a Thanksgiving dinner? The PSO guys need to know. <laughs> we, we may be facing that we have to have it by Zoom, I'm saying. You guys are... Whatever you want from there, have it, whoever, we'll pay for it. All right, and how about we'll this? We'll all go into Zoom. How about this? We'll talk about this after the show. Okay, Kenny, thank you for calling. <laughs> I could call back. All right, you call back. Thank you, Kenny. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Kenny. Everybody. At this rate, if he doesn't have the turkey dinner by this year, he might have to send the PSO guys uh, some, some turkey as well. He's, uh, he's an interesting fellow, guys. Yes, that he is. All right, our next question that we will send to you. After this, we're going to go to a break. All righty. So last question before we go to break, we're going to go back to football. Who was the best running back that came out of the 2008 NFL draft? We got Matt Forte, Ray Rice, Chris Johnson, and Jamal Charles all in that draft. Who do you think is the best one of that group and why? So when you say the best one, are we talking career-wise? Are we talking just season? Or you could you could talk about it in any facet that you can you can do skills, numbers, accomplishments, whatever you want to do. Who do you think is the best and why? Uh, when it comes to just single season, I mean, I think you have to say CJ2K. I mean, Chris Johnson broke on the scene as a skinnier running back who ran a four-two-four, which wasn't really prominent in the NFL at that time. And the way that he came onto the scene and really put the Tennessee Titans on the map by winning for 2,000 yards, which is damn near unspeakable at that time. I think the only players that had done that before him was uh, Jamal Lewis and Eric Dickerson, I believe so. So I think just single season wise, CJ2K that season just really came on the map and just completely dominated them. But when I think of from a long term standpoint, I would have to say uh, the Chiefs running back. Jamal Charles. I mean, Jamal Charles had a long career that was dominant for a long time. I mean, he was just consistent over and over and over again. And that was really the only weapon the Chiefs really had for a, a long part of that of his career. So they really just fed him, handed it to him over and over again, and he produced from year in and year out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to stick with uh, Brandon's first point. I think CJ2K, not only did he have an absolutely dominant season by far, better than Jamal Charles' best season, by far better than Matt Forte's best season, by far better than probably any running back in the last 20 years besides Adrian Peterson. But he also has the second most rushing yards among the class. Matt Forte is the only argument, really, that can, uh, you know, really, um, you know, be of interest when it comes to that because Matt Forte did it, you know, not only in the running game but also the passing game. But Chris Johnson's ability to – dominate in his prime more than anyone else in that class, I think, goes a long way. And then also the fact that he still, even the fact that his career wasn't as long and he didn't play as many years as Matt Forte, the fact that he was only 100 yards short career-wise just shows, and that was with 200 less carries. So, I mean, he was averaging the most yards per carry. Obviously, Jamal Charles has the most yards per carry of any running back in NFL history. But Chris Johnson's ability to dominate that one year more than anyone and also have longevity to have more rushing yards than Jamal Charles, to have a better yards per carry than Matt Forte, and to be probably a bigger impact on the game than any of those three, I think, give him the slight edge. Go ahead, Speedy. All right, so I'm going to take Matt Forte for this one. I think when you have to factor in is also the receiving game, too, as well. This was a guy that was the best receiver on the Bears for quite a while. They didn't have a lot of great receivers after guys like Bernard Berrien and Musa Muhammad were gone after that, and they never had quarterbacks. I mean, Jay Cutler could throw for yards, but he never 
he never was a consistent quarterback. He had 20, 25 interceptions every year. So Forte was really the focal point of that offense. And I also think, too, when you look at the offensive line comparisons, Chris Johnson played under one of the best team offensive lines we saw in 2008 and 2009. Michael Ruse, Kevin Mawai, David Stewart. There was a lot of great offensive line talent on that team. Outside of Olin Kreutz for Chicago, who was a great center, they didn't really have that same level of offensive line talent that the Titans did, and even the Ravens for Ray Rice. You, you're talking about Jonathan Ogden. At one point, they had Mac, Matt Burke uh, in that Super Bowl year, Marshall Yanda. They've had they've had several great linemen, too. And I don't think the Bears really had that for a while. And again, Forte also just being such a threat in the receiving game. He had close to 80 catches pretty much every year, that Mike Martz offense. And again, he was really a focal point of an offense that didn't have much else. Now, granted, ne- neither did Jamal Charles, neither did somebody like Chris Johnson. Their receivers weren't anything special either. But I think in terms of the offensive line comparisons and just in terms of the passing game comparisons, you have to factor that into best all-around running back. you got to factor longevity. Longevity is the most important part, especially for a running back position. Running backs only play six to seven, possibly eight years. When you, when you talk about Matt Forte, Matt Forte played over 10 years. He was dominant. And if you look at his numbers, just look at his numbers. 2,356 rushing, rushed, 9,796 rushing yards, 54 touchdowns. When you try to compare Charles, and Jamal Charles was a great player for Kansas City. He dominated the league for like three or four years, injury prone. Even Chris Johnson, he was a dominant force for like three or four years. He was the best running back in the league, especially when he played for Tennessee. When he moved around and he went to different places, yeah, he started to, to disintegrate. He started to fall off, but that's with a lot of running backs. Matt Forte, he played consistently almost his whole career before he retired. Even when he went to the Jets, I think he had 786 yards his last season with the New York Jets. He was consistent. Consistency and longevity is the most important. And if you look at rushing yards or even yards, yards per carry... Matt Forte is one of the best of all time when you look at those numbers. So when you compare all three of those running backs, and all three of them are borderline Hall of Famers. Jamal Charles is one of the most underrated running backs of all time, and nobody even talks about him. And same thing with Chris Johnson, who I love Chris Johnson. He played for the Jets for a little bit of time. He, he regrets playing for the Jets. But he didn't have a great career with the New York Jets. And everywhere he went after Tennessee, he started his career started to fall downhill. When, when Matt Forte went to the Jets, he was still the same running back, the same power running back, where you can use him in all different aspects of the offense. So it's Matt Forte. Matt Forte is, out of all three of those guys, probably the closest thing to a Hall of Famer. And that was, that was Ryan Fitzpatrick, at quarterback that year for him. So they really didn't have much else to look at. I know Brandon Marshall had that great year too, but they didn't really have much else to look at. Whereas Chris Johnson, when he went to Arizona, he had Bruce Arians, he had Carson Palmer, he had Larry Fitzgerald, a lot of other talented guys there to extend his career, and you're right. Jamal Charles probably is, probably is a Hall of Famer if he doesn't have those injuries towards the end of his career, but Matt Forte might get in anyway because he didn't really have those problems. All right, our time is up. All right, guys, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do more of Sports Debate Wars with PSO and WWSR right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> This is Below the Mic. As you know, we are live Monday. I'm sorry, we're live every single Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. New York Eastern Time. Right now, we have PSO with us. We're debating and arguing sports right now as we speak. I want to apologize to all the fans out there. There is a little bit of reverb sound in the background. We're going to try to fix that. 
Um, PSO right now, they, they don't have any mics over there, so we will try to clean that up so there will be less background and backlash. So PSO, when we do the questions and we ask you the questions, when you go first, we're going to mute our mics, and then when we go, we're going to mute your mics, okay? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. All right, who's up first? They ask us now. All right, they ask us first. All right, so we ended off with football, so let's start with football. And we were talking about all these great running backs. Some of them were former number one fantasy picks, and they dominated their fantasy leagues. This year, in 2020, who would be your number one pick in fantasy football this year? All right. I'm going to say Christian McCaffrey for this one. Uh, I think the guy is going to be the focal point of his team again. Again, PPR-wise, when you look at McCaffrey, you have to look at most leagues are PPR, whether they're half-point or four-point PPR. And, again, he's going to catch the ball out of the backfield a lot. You have a college-style offense now, which, again, Matt Rule has, is going to bring. And Matt Rule made the best out of his running backs in that one season at Baylor and Christian McCaffrey, obviously the kind of player he is way more skilled than anything that he has that ever was coaching there. And you look at the season, he had 107 catches in 2018, 116 catches in 2019. and had a thousand receiving yards. There are receivers that don't get to a thousand receiving yards. You have to expect probably a little bit of regression from a 2000 yard season, but it doesn't mean he can't be the best player again when he's still the focal point of that team. You have a new quarterback in Teddy Bridgewater. who's going to take some time to get used to the system. And again, Teddy Bridgewater being a not very big arm quarterback, he probably is going to use his running backs a lot more. He did that in Minnesota when he was there. And even though Alvin Kamara was hurt at times last year, when he was playing, he was useful for Teddy Bridgewater with the saints. So from that judgment, I think you have to have it be Christian McCaffrey from the way it looks at it, there's going to be some touchdown regression. Okay. There's going to be some yards regression, but you have to factor in too that again, PPR leagues are really what are worth dominating fantasy football right now. And he can run. He was, I think the fourth leading rusher in the league last year, he can run and he can catch. And that's when you look at everything. And now you have a college coach to go along with that, a modern type offense to go with that. That makes a big difference in terms of his production. Even if it drops off a little, not dropping off too much where he could still be definitely the best player and best value pick at I'm, number one. I'm going to go on the opposite. I'm going to go with a quarterback here. Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson was the best when it came to fantasy. Running the ball, throwing the ball last year accurately. He threw over, I think, what was his completion percentage last year? I'm trying to get his completion percentage. I want to say it was 66. It's uh, 66.1%. I mean, Lamar Jackson, he can run, he can throw, he's a dual threat, he can do everything on the field that other quarterbacks can't do at, the, at a high level. Now, I know everybody's going to say Patrick Mahomes, he can run the ball and throw the ball. He can't run 1,000 yards like Lamar Jackson can. And, and to me, with a PPR league and the transition of the PPR league and the fantasy league, you have to look at a running quarterback, a guy that can throw completion passes, guy that can throw touchdowns. Last year, I think he had 36 touchdowns to only six or four interceptions. I mean, Lamar Jackson all around, and, and, and really... When we talk about Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson, these guys are dual threats. Even Russell Wilson. These guys can do not one but two or possibly three things in fantasy where it's going to gain you 50 to 60 points. And a quarterback position, in my eyes, if you can add a quarterback to give you about 40 to 50 points every single week, you have a chance to win every single week. So it's Lamar Jackson. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. That, those rushing yards, especially for quarterbacks, will contribute. All right, you guys. God be yeah, I think when you talk about ESPN, Yahoo, NFL.com, all of them are going to say the number one guy you should pick is exactly who Speedy said, Christian McCaffrey. And you know what happens every year to that number one pick that everyone said it should be the number one pick? 
something bad happens to them. They don't end up as the number one pick. So other than stating the obvious, obviously Christian McCaffrey had a fantastic year, but there's a lot of question marks surrounding Christian McCaffrey. He's got a new coach. He's got a new quarterback. He's going to be in a new system. We don't know how that will translate, not to mention the fact that at the running back position, you have so many guys that are very close at that elite level. You have Saquon Barkley. You have other guys that are, you know, at that elite level. Le'Veon Bell could have a bounce back here. We've seen him dominate fantasy leagues before. So, I mean, I could go down the list and continue on. And it was interesting that Errol said Lamar Jackson because you have a guy in Patrick Mahomes that, you know, is also an elite fantasy producer. And while he doesn't have the rushing production, he could have much more passing production. So when you have those guys that their competition is almost as good as them, you want to take someone that's much ahead of their competition. And the only player at a value position like running back, quarterback, receiver that is like that in this year is Michael Thomas. Because when you talk about a PPR league, which Speedy rightfully said is pretty much what everyone's doing nowadays, PPR has a lot of popularity. Michael Thomas just broke the record for the most catches, the most receptions, the most points you can get in your fantasy league for a guy catching the ball. And he looks like he's going to do it again because he excels in slants and in routes and out routes and bubble screens. They find a way to get him the ball in easy ways, and then his yak ability takes care of itself. So I think when you're looking at a guarantee, I don't think there's any bigger guarantee of anyone producing at a high level than Michael Thomas. So I think putting him as your number one pick can lock you in for an elite wide receiver position, whereas if you take someone else, you could probably get – almost equivalent production in the second or third round. Yeah, I try to really take fantasy with a true GM approach. And when it comes to taking a running back, they're usually underpaid for a reason, and that's because it's more likely for them to get hurt. And Christian McCaffrey is obviously a very boom prospect, but that injury potential really worries me as that being my first pick of the draft. And when I look at Michael Thomas, he's going to get the ball, and he's going to get the catches, he's going to get the receptions. And even if his quarterback does get hurt, like Drew Brees did last year, he still led the league in yards and receptions. So Drew Brees did get hurt again this year. They would still have Taysom Hill, and they would still have Jameis Winston. So, I mean, there's not much of a drop-off. There's not much that you really have to worry about him when it comes to the risk factor. And he's only missed one game in his career. And when you think about the second-best receiver fantasy-wise, I think there's a big gap between that when it, uh, opposed to quarterback and running back. So I think Michael Thomas's volume, uh, the quarterback series on his team, the way his team just feeds him, I think he's my clear number one pick on this draft. All right, next question for us. Well, I, I, I agree with both of you, and I look at Lamar Jackson just because he's transitioned the game as a running quarterback, and everybody says, well, Russell Wilson and, and this guy and Deshaun Watson – Go look at what he has done on the field last year in fantasy PPR leagues. He dominated the PPR league. And as long as they protect him, which they will protect him this year, he's going to be able to run against teams again this year. And if he's giving you 40 to 50 points every single week, you're not going to get that much from a wide receiver every single week. Michael Thomas isn't going to give you 40, 50 points every single week. He can give you 20, 25, 30. He's not going to give you 40, 50. That's the thing. When you have a dual threat like Lamar Jackson, I think he could dominate the game in so many different ways. So that's why I argue a quarterback. Even though a lot of people in fantasy do not draft a quarterback in the first round. There's a lot of good ones. That's why. All right. Our, Our first dual sport question. The better underdog championship run. The Mavericks, when they won their title against the Miami Heat in 2010 or 11, or last season with the Washington Nationals. Ooh. 
Oh, great question. Um, so who had a better title on the Mavericks when they upset the Heat or the Nationals? So I know mine off the bat. Uh, I think it's the Washington Nationals. I thought it was the best playoff run in baseball history that I've ever seen. I mean, I thought the Mavs run was magical in the fact that they upset the Heat. And I think they slept the Lakers, if I'm not uh, incorrect, who had just won uh, the last two Western Conference championships. And, you know, that was a great run. But what the Nationals were able to do in the fact that they were in the wild card game and came from behind to win that down two runs, won that, then go to face the Dodgers, the best record in the National League, down two to one in the series, come back, and then in game five, down by two runs again, and Anthony Rendon and Juan Soto hit iconic back-to-back jacks off Clayton Kershaw, and let it be known that Clayton Kershaw is not a great playoff performer, and then also that they are the best like tandem in the middle of the lineup that we've probably ever seen in playoff history. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous what Anthony Rendon was able to do. But as I continue to look back at their run in the NLCS, then they swept the Cardinals. It wasn't even a contest, which, you know, doesn't add to the, the magicness of the postseason. But then when they're facing the Astros, they take a great 2-0 lead in Houston, by the way, with Juan Soto taking Garrett Cole deep, doing the impossible. They forced Garrett Cole to lose the game, the best pitcher in baseball, probably one of the best uh, half seasons we've seen from a pitcher in a long time. This is Garrett Cole's second half before he had to face the Nationals. And then they come back and they go down three to two, go back into Houston and win two more times at a place where we know now that there's been cheating going on. So they overcame cheating. They overcame comeback after comeback. They overcame the wild card game and they did it with their heart of the lineup producing at ungodly levels. And I haven't even talked about the, the biggest hero of them all. Howie Kendrick, who came through with one of the only grand slams in extra innings MLB postseason history, and then did it again with the biggest hit in Nationals franchise history in Game 7 off a low and away curveball. We actually just put it on PSO underscore sports on Instagram. We just put up the 20 greatest plays of the 2000s, and that was number 8 because of the situation and the difficulty of hitting that pitch. And so their entire run... Um, and to do it all for the pitchers, they did it. Clayton Kershaw, as I mentioned before, Jack Flaherty, you know, Josh Hader, they come back on Garrett Cole, Justin Berlander. They took, they beat the best of the best and it proved that they were the best and had the best playoff run. Yeah, I think Robin on the head. I mean, when you come into the series, you got what you guys from the Washington, D.C. area. And nobody in this area truly believed that the Nationals had a chance to put in the World Series last year. The way that they came in and beat the the Dodgers, and they beat the cheating Astros. And just comparing that to the, the unlikely heroes they have, or not even really unlikely, but the young players, such as Soto hitting bombs, um, Howie Kendrick coming in and making big play after big play. And just comparing that to the series that Dirk had. And your time is up. <laughs> you use all the three minutes. All right, you want to go first for this for us, or you want to? You go. You can go first. All right, so we're going to take the Dallas Mavericks here, and again, both runs were phenomenal, but I also think though too, Dallas again was more dominant in their playoff run. They, mm-hmm. when you look at it, they won in six games against the Blazers, which actually was after uh, tied with the Miami Heat for the most games they had to take. They swept the Lakers, like you were saying, which were still a fantastic team at that time. They beat a Thunder team, which had Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. Granted, Westbrook and Harden weren't as good yet, but they were still dominant players. And the Dallas roster, when you look at it, there was a lot of players that were past their prime, and again, you didn't know what they were going to get. You knew Dirk was there. You knew what he was going to get. Tyson Chandler was a great center in the league at that time. But again, a lot of the guys... 
on that roster were past their prime. When you look at Jason Kidd, you look at Sean Marion, Peja Soryakovich was a good three-point shooter. You had uh, Jason Terry past his prime too, another great three-point shooter when you look at all-time threes made. So again, from that standpoint, you have to look at it. And again, what was all the hype? When is LeBron going to win? When is LeBron going to win? So that has to put some pressure on Dallas when you look at it because, again, look at the NBA. Look at what the NBA is branded on. They branded on their stars winning and their stars' legacies. And Dallas went in there, nothing to lose and just – dominated them it's not like they dominated them and it was a close series it was four to two and this was a three seed a dallas mavericks three seed with a lot of older players they had a better coach in rick carlisle over what eric spolster was at that time but again they had of that series when you look at it dirk was probably the third or fourth best player overall with when you look at lebron and wade and then again him and him bosh are probably about the same at that time so i think it's dallas and it looks like Errol's agreeing. I'm going to say it's Dallas, too. Especially, and I, I know everybody argues what the Nationals did last year. And the Nationals did an unbelievable, they had an unbelievable run, especially what they did going through the playoffs. But look at the roster. First of all, they were 57-25 and 25 going into the playoffs. They were a third seed. And like Speedy was saying, go look at their team, J.J. Barea. J.J. Barea was their best player throughout the playoffs. He played the best throughout the playoffs. An old Jason Kidd who washed up Jason Kidd, who hasn't really won a championship. A guy that went back to Dallas from the from the Nets to try to win a championship with uh, Rick Carlisle and that team. So you look at all all in all that whole team: Steve Novacek, Dirk Nowinski, Sasha um, Vojacek, uh, Peja Stojakovic, Jason Terry. These are all washed up players, old players. They went into Miami, beat Miami, and they beat Miami in six games. They didn't even go to a seven game. Uh, process that which would a lot of people when you look at that team and the dominance of that team with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch and and LeBron James and all the players that they had yes it was LeBron James's first year on the Miami uh, Miami Heat but again what that team did what the Mavericks did going through the West the West was so hard to get through the West and then go to the East and play the Miami the Miami Heat as dominant as they were throughout the play throughout the regular season especially in the second half Miami was the most dominant team in the second half of the season first half they they were starting to figure things out and then in the second half they were completely dominant so it is the Dallas Mavericks they also only held Miami to 100 points once every other time they had less than 100 points mm-hmm. which is very impressive all right your next question for us all right so get on some baseball questions here but we're going to go back to football real quick so our question for you is if there is any non-playoff team from last year, and keep in mind there was only six playoff teams last year, there's now seven this year, as we all know, who is an actual legit Super Bowl contender that didn't make the playoffs last year? We're not going to put Nithin on. I don't think it's Nithin. It's White Plains. Who's, who's I think it? it's Kenny again. <laughs> it's Kenny. I'm not putting Kenny on. I'm not putting Kenny on with the turkey dinner. What was the question again? I'm sorry, guys. No, all good, all good. So a non-playoff team from 2019 that is a Super Bowl contender going into 2020. Go ahead, Speedy. Ooh, a non-playoff team that is a Super Bowl contender. That is an interesting question. I'm going to say the Indianapolis Colts. I think when you look at the Indianapolis Colts, 
they have they have great coaching when you look at Frank Reich. I think he's done a, did a great job last year on an extremely difficult schedule that they had last year. They had to play the NFC South, they had to play the AFC West, which again not a great division, but still a good division with some competitive teams. And again, when you look at the AFC, it's just a lot easier than the NFC when you look at it. the NFC is a ton of parity. When you look at the NFC South having a lot of good teams, the NFC West having a lot of good teams, it's a lot easier to go through in the AFC than it is in the NFC. Now you have the Patriots are probably going to drop off. You have a, a team like the Chiefs and you have a team like the Ravens, but there's really no other standout. And Indianapolis, again, when you look at the coaching, you look at the improvements they made in the draft. Now they have a legit running game now with Jonathan Taylor as a good pure runner that they've needed. Their defense is a lot better and a lot more experienced. They were playing with a lot of rookies last year and Darius Leonard out for a long time. So when you look at it from that standpoint, the AFC South always changes every year where they can definitely win that division. And again, I think the coaching is definitely there. Just a matter of if Philip Rivers can get it done in close games. It's always been a notorious it's problem It's all for about Philip Rivers. It's a notorious problem for him, but I'm going to say this too. The Chargers are also a problem in close games too. It wasn't just him. So that will make a difference. But again, there's always a time for everybody, and it might just be this chance for, for the Colts. And the league wants it to be that way because the league loves their quarterbacks. I, I like the Colts too. The Colts, they needed a quarterback. and It's not Jacoby Brissett. Philip Rivers is a guy that has been achieved. He's achieved all his goals, but a Super Bowl. He's going to a team that has is stacked now. They added Buck, uh, Bruckner. Uh, I'm sorry, Buckner in the offseason adds him a pass rusher. They have the pass rushing. They have the secondary now, and they have the wide receiving core. You have T.Y. Hilton. They have the experience and and the Marlon Marlon Mack, who's one of the most underrated running backs in the league that nobody even talks about when they try to compare some of the best running backs in the league. You go look at their numbers, and the offensive line is. Is the best offensive line or second best offensive line in all of football. This is a team that didn't make the playoffs really because of the quarterback position. I, 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 didn't, I didn't trust uh, Jacoby Brissett. I trust Phillip Rivers. He can get this team over the hump. This is a guy that really needs to get over the hump in the playoffs. That's the only problem that Phillip Rivers has had over the years. I like what this team has. And by the way, they added Trey Burton in the offseason too. A tight end who's uh, experienced. A guy that was explosive with the Chicago Bears. And you're giving him so many weapons, not only in the wide receiver and the running back, like you were saying, Speedy, you're giving them tight ends, and their offensive line is going to give them enough time. That was the problem with the Chargers last year. They didn't give them enough time. Now you're giving Phillip Rivers, the window thrower, an opportunity to throw the ball to all these different weapons on the field. It's absolutely the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, so like Speedy said, I don't think it'd be wise to pick a team in the NFC just based off how stacked that division is. So we're going to stay in the AFC as well. We're going to go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And when you think about the Pittsburgh Steelers and their history in the playoffs, they've ran into two teams that they've really struggled with. Actually, three. And that's the Baltimore Ravens, the New England Patriots, and the Indianapolis Colts back in the Peyton Manning days. So obviously, New England is falling off a little bit. So that was their biggest challenge. So really, the biggest challenge in the AFC is Baltimore and Kansas City. But when you think about the Steelers, they had the third best defense in the NFL last year. And if you think about the two teams that went to the Super Bowl, the Patriots and the 49ers, those were the two best defenses in the NFL last year. And the Steelers were number three. And I think when you think about when the Steelers did have success in this century, it's been through their defense. And Mike Tomlin was also the coach when they made two Super Bowl runs. And he won one, obviously, and he lost one against the Packers. But the Steelers' defense is dominant. And you have to remember, this was an 8-5 team last year that only had Ben Roethlisberger playing one full game. They were 8-5 at one point with two young quarterbacks that barely had any NFL experience, and they still had a great chance of making it to the playoffs. As a matter of fact, if it was last year, they would have been the seventh seed in the playoffs this year. And this is a team that's really young, 
on the offensive side of the ball as well, but they have talent. They have a licensed Chubbies this year. They have a licensed James Conner. They picked up Eric Ebron in the offseason on a nice deal for about three mil, six mil a year. So I think this team is really building something, and they're building the right pieces around Ben Roethlisberger that really mimic that championship caliber teams that they had in the early 2010s. Yeah, and we all know the defense wins championships. And when you look at the Steelers and the Colts, it's actually two complete opposite teams, but also two teams very similar at the quarterback position. And when I say that they're opposite, I look at the Colts as a team that has probably 0% chance of of winning less than six or seven games. Their ceiling is very high, or their floor is very high, but their ceiling is not as high as the Steelers. I don't see Phillip Rivers winning a Super Bowl period, but then also for him to win a Super Bowl in the first year in a new system with pieces around him that probably aren't any better than he had in L.A. Of course, he does have a better offensive line, but let's not act like five guys up front is going to be the difference maker in Phillip Rivers instead of throwing that game-changing interception. You know, now all of a sudden he's going to win three or four playoff games to win a Super Bowl. But when you look at the Steelers, they could be, you know, a top five pick because we don't know what's going to happen with Big Ben. But if he comes back at the way that he was playing at his Hall of Fame rate and you combine that with the defense that they have and the most versatile pair of weapons that they have, I mean, when you look at their offensive plan, they can change every single week because they have someone on their weapons that can do everything. You got If you need to get a deep ball, you know, you have Chase Claypool that they just drafted uh, who can also be a red zone threat. When you want to throw some screens or some motions, you have Deontay Johnson that can make those shifty plays. When you want to get a quick screen pass, I mean, I'm sorry, a quick slant, and you need that third down conversion, you have Juju that can make that play. And your time is up. Your three minutes is up. Next one might be up, but I just want to prove that (laughs) the Steelers are the team that can be uh, AFC champion beside the Ravens and the Chiefs. And the Colts, I just don't see being able to make that run after not having that playoff. Just Just so you guys know, the same offense that Frank Reich runs in Indianapolis, they ran practically the same offense two years ago with Phillip Rivers. So... Uh, I do believe Phillip Rivers can flourish in this offense. They got so many weapons all over the field, and that offensive line is dominant. And they can, if they give Phillip Rivers enough time to throw the ball, he will dominate the line of scrimmage. And he hasn't won like Ben Roethlisberger. Ben, Re- ben Roethlisberger is coming off a major, major injury, shoulder injury. This is not a, a half-ass injury. This this sent him out almost the whole season, almost twelve months. And when when, when him coming back, this is an aging. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, who's coming off a major injury. I think, how old is Ben? 37, 38? He's 37 now. Yeah. He's 37, 38 with his shoulder, his throwing, th- his throwing shoulder. I, I, I'm, sa- I'm going to say Phillip Rivers and the Indianapolis Colts, and they're in an easier division, a much easier division. All right, next question from Ben Bear. He's letting him know he's healthy now. <laughs> All right, next question from us to you, from a, from a new team in the playoffs to repeat. Which champion from 2019 is most likely to repeat when their season resumes? So the Raptors of the NBA, the Blues are in the NHL, the Nationals in MLB, or the Chiefs in the NFL? Shit. Uh, all right, let's see. I don't think the Nationals will, and I've actually been on the record to say the Chiefs won't. So I guess I'm going to go Toronto. So here's, here's my argument for Toronto. Honestly, for the record, I would say no one's repeating out of the three. And I don't really know hockey that much, so I can't talk about that. 
But when it comes to the Raptors, one thing that benefits them during this whole season suspension is the fact that they have probably the most continuity among any team. And when you have a situation like this, the biggest thing that you're going to need is a coach that has proven that he can be able to handle adverse situations, which the Raptors have gone through. And Nick Nurse has proven he could do in his first season. And also a team that has that chemistry and continuity to be able to get right back to it after missing three, four months and just be right back into finding the open guy, making the right pass, making the right defensive switches, and being able to win basketball games. So when it comes to a team looking at it like they could repeat, I don't think any of them, um, you know, will. Obviously, I think the Chiefs will probably be favorites, but I don't see that happening for a number of reasons that I could elaborate on if we had more time. But the Raptors having that continuity play in a suspensional season in this situation, I think gives them a huge advantage that a lot of other teams in the NBA don't have. Not to mention their defense got even better without Kawhi Leonard. So they do have some things going for them. Yeah, they got some fans going for them. Like you said, defense is their main thing. But like you guys were talking about the Mavericks, the Mavericks wasn't the, weren't the most talented team, but they had the continuity. They had those veterans. They know how to play together. They had the coach. They knew what they were doing. And I think Nick and Nurse really had the team playing together. They play hard on the defensive end. They don't have a superstar to score the ball on the offensive side of the ball, but they still get the job done because of the defensive tenacity and their attention to people on the offensive side of the ball. They obviously won a championship last year, and they seem hungry to be able to do it again. And the fact that this is in Canada, the fact that Canada is really behind them, Canada gives them that vibe, they give them the energy. I think that they will take that energy, they'll take their defensive tenacity, and they'll run with their coach and do the best they can to run through a wall and try to win another national championship. All right. Interesting. Very right. interesting. You want to go first again? Or? You could go first. All right, so we're going to go with the St. Louis Blues on this one. I'll just add a little bit, a uh, little pepper on it. Yeah, we're going to go with the St. Louis Blues on this one, and I think they actually are one of the, when you look at the, hiatuses within the sports they benefit the most for this reason they're going to get their best player back in vladimir tarasenko he was supposed to be out for the whole season and now with the nhl playoffs being shifted to july possibly august he's now going to be able to come back and when you look at him being their best player i know he had a, he had a down regular season last year but he had a phenomenal postseason especially in the in the western conference finals against the sharks and this team as a whole just really got better they didn't really digress at all they didn't have any kind of hangover you bring in justin falk to help out your defense you got colton pareko still has had a great year petrangelo all these guys are are playing very well and they have now something else to play for i, I don't know obviously if you guys don't follow hockey you might not know but they had jay bo meester get knocked out for cardiac arrest uh, mm-hmm. in a game in february against the ducks and they're gonna they're gonna want to play for him they're going to do it for him he's not going to be able to return this year he's been one of their best defensemen for a very long time not just recently really even before they really were a good team he was one of their best defensemen and so they're going to have something to play for when it comes to that you have another year of experience out of jordan biddington you have a healthy Jaden schwartz who's that's been a problem for him year in and year out yeah they have some playoff experience on this roster now even going back to, to some other teams too and when you look at the rest of the champions the nationals again they lost some players in the offseason when you look at the chiefs i mean they could definitely do it but it still is going to be hard with again some of the players they lost on defense. Can Clyde Edwards Hilaire be a feature running back? There's a lot of questions. And again, Andy Reid, he won a Super Bowl finally, but can he do it again? Whereas again, I think it'll be easier for a team like the Blues, who defense wins championships. They have the defense and they have something to play for. Well, you look at the Chiefs and you look at football. How many teams have won back-to-back championships? Who was the last team to do it? The New England Patriots. That was a long time ago. Then you go to the Nationals in baseball. Who was the last team to win back-to-back championship? 
uh, uh, was it the Giants? No, Giants weren't back-to-back. It was, I think the, it was Yankees. the Yankees. It yeah. was the Yankees in the 90s. And then you look at the Toronto Raptors, the last team to win back-to-back championships. Who was it? Golden State. The Golden State Warriors. Now, the Golden State Warriors with Toronto and with all those teams in, the, uh, in basketball, you can compare and contrast all these teams. If you have the best team, you have the best player, you have the best chance of winning. But it, it really is the NHL. It's the St. Louis Blues. And really because of the round-robin and coming back, Coming back from um, 15, well, 15, 16 games that they're going to go right to the playoffs. I'm hearing they're going to have 12 teams from each division, uh, each league from the East and the Western Conference. And goaltending. Goaltending is the most important part of positioning in the NHL playoffs. And you saw what Jordan Bennington could do, dominating. Their defense is one of the best defenses in all of the NHL, one of the most underrated defenses in the NHL. And then you look at their centers, their four lines. They have probably the best overall four, uh, in the top five Four, four, four lines in the NHL. So you compare, you, you say Terezenko, but there are guys like uh, Petrangelo and, and, and Vince Dunn and Marco Scudella and, and Ryan O'Reilly. These are all great players, and they're playoff players. And this is a team also, had really, ever since Craig Berube took over, have been one of the best teams in the NHL. Go look at what their record was when he took over in the second half, of the, early in the first half of the season, go after the All-Star break, and really completely dominated all the way through through the second half of the season, going all the way to the playoffs, going all the way to Boston and knocking them off. And now you're seeing them this year. What was their record this year before the season? 94 points. Yeah, they had 94 mm-hmm. points. They were one of the best teams in the Western right, Conference. Your, up. your time is up. All righty. So your next question for us. All right. So I, I will tell you, it's a lot better when we mute each other because in the first two debates, I kept hurting. I, I kept hearing like bump, 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 you know, sound. So it's much better muting us when we when we talk. All right. Your next yeah. question for us. I think it's the computer we're using. It's like overheating, so it gives off that kind of background noise. So I think that's the next time we do this. I'm going to help you guys out. We'll figure out something where the sound will be a lot better. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but as for our question for you guys, so a big part of what we do at Pro Sports Outlook is looking at the outlook of the players. And obviously we're in 2020 and we're looking at the outlook of the next 10 years. So when it comes to the next 10 years in the game of basketball, who do you see as the most likely player to dominate this next, this next decade of basketball? Ooh. I'm going to take this one first. Mm. That's a good question. That's a really, really good question. I'll let you go first. All right. All right. We'll, we'll argue for uh, Luka Doncic. I think Luka Doncic, when you look at what he's done already in the league for the Dallas Mavericks, I think he really has been fantastic. When you look at the way the game is evolving in terms of modern-day concepts, you look at big guys are shooting threes now. And Luka Doncic, again, he's not in that small guard mold. He's not in that fast. He is fast for his size, but he's not in that like fast. You have to ball handle all the time and do it. It's big guys shooting threes and big guys that can pass. And that's really the mold of the game. Now, when you look at Luka Doncic and also again, international talent is becoming a big thing now in today's game. When you look at his numbers this year, he was an MVP candidate much of the year on a team. That's not overly deep. Yeah. You have Chris Depps, Porzingis, Tim Hardaway Jr. is a decent shooter, but again, that's really it. The team is not very deep, a lot of bad contracts and he has 28.7 points a game, 8.7, assists and 9.3 rebounds for the whole season. That's insane numbers when you consider the circumstances. And again, when you look at his growth, his upside, he's 21 years old, six foot seven. And again, he is the perfect mold of what this game is going to big guys that can pass big guys that can ball handle and big guys that can shoot. And, Luka Doncic can do all of that and then some, and he's just 21 years old. 
I like Luca, but I, I'm going to go with the Greek Freak. The Greek Freak has been a dominant player, dominant force, really, the last three years. And if you look at his numbers, how many people could you compare to his numbers from rebounds to points, even to, for a big man, averaging about 5.8 assists last year? I mean, this is the guy. This is the prototypical big man that you want on your team. He can play defense. He can play offense. He can dominate the game in the paint. He can also shoot 17, 18-foot jumpers. Now, the league has changed and transitioned to a three-point league. No question that it has. But what Giannis and, and uh, how do you pronounce uh, it? Antetokounmpo. Antetokounmpo. I can't pronounce his name. You'll get it one of these days. <laughs> I am very bad with this guy's name. But the Greek freak, this guy has transitioned the game. He's 24, 25 years old. He still has a good seven, eight years. You were saying 10 years. But this kid could do everything. And he's going to lead this team to one or two championships, especially in the Eastern Conference. Luka Doncic plays in the Western Conference, which is completely different. Giannis is going to have the opportunity to win consistently every single year because of how weak the Eastern Conference is. And it takes a while for the Eastern Conference to grow like it has over the last couple of years of the West. In the 90s, it was the Eastern Conference. Now in the new era, for the last 20 years, it's been the Western Conference. Giannis has been the best player in my eyes in the last three years. And when you compare LeBron James and all those guys like Anthony Davis and even Luka Doncic and all the players, the young players that we see coming to the league, everybody is prototypically trying to be this guy. It's Giannis onto the coup. So, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a pretty crazy uh, debate, actually. This is the NBA. It's just American, usually generalized as an American sport, but there's a lot of international players that we're discussing. Like, Giannis is an international player, and Luka Doncic as well. But I'm actually going to agree with Speedy, and I'm going to say Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic has been a pro for about six or seven years now, and he's only 21 years old. And he's came onto the NBA scene with a boom, averaging 29 points. Nine rebounds and nine assists. I mean, he's barely a walking triple double at the age of 21 years old. So when we think about 10 years down the line, he'll only be 31 years old. He does everything that he needs. He can pass, he can rebound, he can dribble, he can shoot. He creates plenty of separations on setbacks and a variety of ways. You can tell this guy's been a pro for a long time. So I think his ability to sustain the level that he's playing at now will be relatively easy for him. And he's in a great situation in Dallas with Mark Cuban, he has Dirk Whiskey on the bench as a coach now, and he also has uh, Chris Bass Porzingis. So he's around a lot of these foreign players, and he's very comfortable where he is. But I think he'll be able to sustain for a long time. And interestingly, I'm actually going to agree with Errol. So we have some like uh, debate wars going on within the debate wars, and I'm going to take the Greek freak. I think the argument for Luca has two really pillars. Um, Brandon mentioned some other ones that were good points, like the fact that he's been a pro for five years. But the fact that Luke is younger and the fact that Luca can shoot is really the two things. But Luke is only four years younger, so Giannis is still going to be in his early 30s during the later part of this decade and still has five more years of being in his 20s. And when it comes to shooting, Luka, Luka Doncic is shooting 32% from three this year. Giannis is shooting 31% from three this year. So the difference really isn't much. And Giannis is someone who's shown vast improvement over his past three, four years. So I expect that to continue to improve. And when you look at Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan is known as one of the greatest shooters ever. He shot zero three-pointers when he first started in his career. So he developed that shot. It's something that Giannis can definitely develop as he continues on his career. And it's the only flaw in his game. He has everything else. He can dominate his way into the paint. He can rebound with the best of them. He can defend probably should earn Defensive Player of the Year on an annual basis. And he's a 
lights out player on both ends of the floor. And when you have, when you're projecting someone to be something over 10 years, it's hard to argue for someone who doesn't have elite athleticism because it's something that you're going to need to have to continue to be durable, to continue to have sustained success. And that's something I have no concerns with when it comes to Giannis. So I think Giannis has that ceiling of being one of, if not the greatest players of all time because of the all-around capabilities he could have if he developed that jump shot. And if he does, he's going to be unstoppable and then also defend your best player and limit him as much as anyone can do. So I also agree with Errol. I'm taking Giannis in that. I I just want to give a shout-out to you guys. They said he's been a professional for six years. He was a professional overseas, not in the NBA. So if you guys misunderstand, they said he's been a professional for six years, but he was a professional all the way till he was like 15 or 14 years old. So that's what they meant. That's what they meant. But, yes, I, I think Giannis, and remember, Giannis is a two-time all-defensive player. Uh, to Luka Doncic, who's a good defensive player, he's not an all-defensive player. And, and I, 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 that's the difference. I, I think both players are great players. They're foreign players, and it, you could see the league trans- transitioning into that European style of game, and you can see it right now with Giannis and Luka Doncic, two European players, great players. Yeah, it's really interesting, uh, just real quick, what Brandon brought up, how like the two best two players we're talking about are foreign players and what was an American game. It's really cool to see the Michael Jordan NBA becoming a global game. Michael Jordan, that's who has transitioned the game and what it is today, and nobody can argue that point. Michael Jordan is the reason. Uh, Magic and Larry started and Jordan and Bowl. Mm-hmm. All right, our next question for you guys will shift to baseball now. Who had the more dominant Cy Young season? Clayton Kershaw in 2013 or Jacob deGrom two years ago in 2018? Hmm. Give me one second. I'm going to see if Clayton Kershaw also got blown up in the playoffs that year. Or Go ahead. Was, we'll, give you some sec- we'll give you a second. If it was just every other year. Mm-hmm. So it's 2013, you said. All right. So I'm going to go Jacob DeGrom simply for the fact that they were both all-time seasons. I mean, right off the top of your head, you think of players who dominated the game. Clayton Kershaw was the best player over a decade, and 2013 was probably his most dominant season. And Jacob DeGrom, while he doesn't have the longevity, the question you just asked was who had the best single season. His single season last year was one of the most impressive ones that we've seen, and it didn't end with him getting blown up in the National League Championship Series to the Cardinals who would go on to win the World Series like Clayton Kershaw. So both of these guys dominated. It's hard to say, you know, which one had a better year because they were both dominant. I mean, Kershaw, numbers across the board, you know, you can bring up all the numbers you want. But at the end of the day, what matters is what you do when it matters. And Clayton Kershaw, he will be the dominant player that he is in the regular season. And then when the pressure's on, when this team needs him to deliver, he consistently does it. And it all started in that 2013 season when he got blown up. And so Jacob DeGrom, while he didn't even have a chance to play in the postseason because his team was the worst supporting cast maybe a Cy Young has ever had. I mean, I don't think, I'm sure he set the record for the most games of not allowing more than two runs and still not winning the game, which is why he still won the Cy Young, despite the fact that he only had 12 or 13 wins or whatever it was. But when he went on the field, you knew this guy was going to be lights out. You knew the other team wasn't going to score more than one or two runs. And you knew that your team had a chance to win. And so um, both of those guys had that. But the fact that Clayton Kershaw has ended in the fashion it did, it's hard to give him, you know, that that benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I mean, they both have very elite seasons, obviously. They won't decide, you know, 
But uh, it's, it really goes back to the playoffs, like Kyle saying. You could have an elite season, but it could get derailed in the playoffs. He pitched 10 innings in that playoffs and only gave up seven runs, seven earned runs. So Clayton Kershaw, year in and year out, continues to fold in the playoffs. Jacob DeGrom obviously is not on as good of a team, so he hasn't got a chance to show what he can do on that high level. But just every time Jacob DeGrom steps on the mound, you know you're going to get dominance. And he continually just dominated in 2018. All righty. So we're going to have to fight for Clayton Kershaw here. and No, you don't have to. You could pick Jacob DeGrom. Well, no. I'll, I'll, I'll make it. I'll make it different. I'll fight for Clayton Kershaw. I'll, I'll do what you do. Make it, make, it, make it tough for myself. I am a Mets fan. So I, I do love, this all the time. I, guys love, the, I love the year Jacob DeGrom I do this had, all but again, time. it's a fair argument for Clayton Kershaw. And here's the thing. I think when you look at it, it's a regular season award. So I don't know if you could take what he did in the postseason yep. into account. It's not a combined award. Same thing with any MVP awards, gold gloves, anything like that. It's not a combined award. It's a regular season award, 1.83 ERA. Yeah, DeGrom had 1.7, but again, it, that's not far off. Kershaw pitched more innings, and his whip was a, uh, whip was a little better, uh, 1.915 right. to DeGrom's 0.921. So when they ha- there's definitely some stats there leading. DeGrom had more strikeouts, okay, but Kershaw, again, had more innings pitched. He went longer into games, was, more I think, more consistent in terms of going longer into games. Not really DeGrom's fault, but again, the Mets' bullpen – kept him from some wins. Okay, that's understandable. But again, I also don't think the, the team factor really matters either because mm-hmm. when you look at City Field, you look at Dodger Stadium, both are relatively pitchers' parks. Dodger Stadium has been more of a hitter's park recently, but I don't really think that factors in. And when you look that's at because the, of the power of the lineup, too. And also, again, when you look at the, Ameri- uh, the National League East at that year and the uh, National League West in 2013, they're similar in terms of divisions. Both were pretty weak. Both were pretty top-heavy when you look at it. The Braves were good in 2018, but that was really it. And when you look at the Dodgers competition, you had Arizona, who was a decent team, but it wasn't really great. The Giants had a championship hangover, and the Rockies and Padres were both awful at that time. So the competition level was kind of similar between the two, too. And again, Kershaw's stuff, I think, as a whole, just more dominant when you look at it, just his whole arsenal of pitching, too. So I think it's a fair argument for Kershaw, too. I'm going to go with Clayton Kershaw, too. And Clayton Kershaw did it in a consistent manner. And Jacob DeGrom has dominated the last three or four years, but Clayton Kershaw has been doing it year in and year out every single year. Now, ever since his neck injury, his back injury, he hasn't been the same pitcher. But in 2013, go look at his numbers. I know everybody says ERA and whip, and, and Clayton had Clayton had better whip than uh, uh, Jacob DeGrom did his 2018 season, but and, and the ERA is almost identical. But look at what Clayton Kershaw did, and look at the division Clayton Kershaw is doing it in. Uh, in that in 2013, that was the best division in fo- in basketball. I mean, baseball. baseball I'm sorry, uh, the best division in baseball as far as the Mets are concerned in that division in 2018. Besides it. But really, besides the not even the, the Braves, Braves, the, Braves, Braves yeah. the Braves were the only good team in that division. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember in 2018. But the Braves were the only good team in that division in the year that Jacob Degrom was dominant. So again, you can look at the ERAs and you can compare numbers and numbers and statistics all mean everything when it comes to baseball. But look at the division and look at the dominance of what uh, Clayton Kershaw has done year in and year out. And even in 2013, and the way he dominated and and, and again, if you look at the slugging percentage. Even the batting averages against him. To me, it's under two. It's unbelievable. Both guys have been dominant pitchers in the time of their era. But Clayton Kershaw, because he's done it with the longevity that he has done it in, especially in 2000, and, and comparing his great seasons all the way to his career, he's had great seasons year in and year out for like seven, eight years. Time's up. All right. 
righty. You spoke too much, Speedy. Speedy was being not too much. <laughs> All right, All right guys. guys. Next question for us. Yeah, so, our question to you. We've talked about an NFL team that didn't make the playoffs that could be a contender. We've talked about who has a positive outlook in the 2020s. So let's take that and we'll, we'll stick it in baseball. I think this is our last baseball question. Um, what, who is a team that didn't make the playoffs and that is also likely to dominate the 2020s? A team built for success over the next 10 years, but not a playoff team like the Dodgers and Yankees. That would be the obvious choice. Wow. That's a good question. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think, just give me one second. I'm, I'm looking through, and I'm not even looking at the rosters. I'm just looking at teams right now and trying to think. You want some help? Who didn't make the playoffs? That's who what did you not said. make the playoffs? So did that not would, make the playoffs. So the Indians were the worst, uh, the best team to miss the playoffs. So go from there. White Sox. I think that's definitely one you could look yeah, at. Yeah, I, I think it's the White Sox. All right, go ahead. All Let's right, so we'll, we'll fight for the Chicago White Sox, a team that has loaded with prospects, both with hitting and with loaded pitching. Loaded with prospects. Loaded with prospects. Luis Robert is supposed to come up this year. You already saw last year what Eloy Jimenez could do. Tim Anderson was a batting champion last year and a phenomenal defensive player. And then when you look at the pitchers, you got guys like Dylan Sees, Michael Kopech. Luke, Gio Gonzalez. Now adding Gio Gonzalez and, and Dallas Keuchel, both as depth pieces. You got Lucas Giolito, who had a phenomenal year last year. So they have young talent and veteran talent all mixed in. They have a ton of money to spend. Uh, when you look at it long-term, they're a big market team. And again, when the White Sox have been good, they have spent money. So their owner's not afraid to spend money. They're just looking for the right times to. So I think when you look at it like that, and also the American League kind of being more top-heavy when you look at it. Now, it might not be that way down the road, but when you look at the American League being top-heavy with the Yankees mainly dominating one end, and again, the rest of it kind of being unknown. you got the Rays who are decent in the athletics, but again, they're teams that always crumble in the playoffs. So the White Sox might be that next team in a weak division with the Tigers and Royals rebuilding to be able to do that and take that next step and dominate. They could dominate in a weak division if the Twins regress and the Indians get older or something like that later down the road. So I, I'll, we'll say the White Sox. I, I would say the White Sox, too, with the young talent that they have coming up, like Speedy was mentioning, and really the veterans that they have. Yasmany uh, Grandel is one of the best underrated catchers in the league, and and he got a lot of money this off se- last off season. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about Adam Engel and uh, Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson and Edwin Encarnacion coming to the team from the Yankees, giving them some power at first base and the DH position. Danny Men- Mendick and and uh, Mancada, mm-hmm. who is one of the most underrated shortstops and really underrated all around young infielders in baseball. This team is stacked, and they're pitching. Their young pitching staff, I could go through their young pitching staff and some of the names you probably don't even know. Yes, you know Dallas Keuchel. Yes, you know uh, Gio Gonzalez. But there are guys like Aaron Bummer and Dylan Seas and Steve Seashack and Alex Colom. They're a load of good young prospects and good young pitching in their front. And they got four of the best. I think that. I think they have four of the best young right-handed and left-handed prospect pitchers in baseball in the top 100. So this team is stacked. They are stacked. And they have, I think in the top 30, I think they have four of the top 30 players. Definitely Robert and Kopech. Yes. For sure. Four of the three of the top 
best young prospects in baseball in the top 30 in the league. And they're, they're not even up yet. So this team is stacked, and this team is going to be very, very good for many, many years to come. When you compare it to some of the teams like the Yankees, who are still young, the Red Sox that are rebuilding, the Tampa Bay Rays that are always trying to throw away players when they get sick of them. I mean, there are not many good young teams that are rebuilding that didn't make the playoffs last year that you can talk about this year. You can talk about the Chicago White Sox. So it is the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, I think the White Sox were a great choice. And I'm really not a fan of, you know, plugging our own stuff. But I do like to do it when it provides value to the audience. It's something that will provide any viewer, anyone listening, of understanding, you know, what team can dominate for the future. If you go to prosportsoutlook.com, we have these team outlooks that include future depth charts. And you can get a great understanding of what this team is building, the roster and depth chart, and how this team is going to unfold the expectations for each of the 30 MLB teams, each of the 30 NBA teams, 32 NFL teams. So when looking at those, I think the White Sox was a great choice, but we're, we're actually going to go with the San Diego Padres, another team that's building an absolute stats farm system. They have a great pitching staff in place for, for two, three years from now. It started with Chris Paddock's rise onto the scene, his ability to dominate as a rookie, and he could be one of the best pitchers of this decade. And then you have Mackenzie Gore, one of the top prospects in baseball, dominant lefty. He's going to come in, probably be successful right away. And you combine that with a guy named Luis Patino, who's another guy who has all-star potential. He could be in the big leagues as soon as next year and could be a um, solid starter, you know, come 2022 and be that guy for the next eight years to continue their success. But what really sticks out about the Padres is just their extreme depth. I mean, they have guys in place to start, and then they have two, three more guys that are going to be ready to do that in the next two, three years. So what that means is they have all these pieces ready to go to make these blockbuster trades, to go acquire that Chris Bryant, to go acquire those players that might not get that contract extension that could come to San Diego, which is obviously not a big market. They probably can't, you know, spend big, but they show that they will go out and go get an Eric Hosmer. They will go get a Manny Machado. They will do the things that they need to do to put the right pieces in place. And Manny Machado is the perfect person to leave this team as a Hispanic player, as a player who's been through it. He knows what it takes to go to the World Series. He has that experience, and he's leading a guy who also is right next to him, one of the biggest studs in baseball, maybe sports in general, Fernando Tatis Jr., who's going to probably be a perennial all-star throughout this decade. And when you combine that and the next two, three stars that they acquire with their elite depth, you have a team that's talented and that could run away with a lot of divisions and possibly a few world championships. Yeah, the Padres have depth for days. They'll be able to go out and execute blockbuster trades. And like Rob said, last year they really came on the scene and really acquired some big free agents such as Manny Machado. And Manny Machado is a player that's been through a rebuilding process like he did in Baltimore under Buck Showalter, where he took a team that was 16 years of absolute nothing, of complete garbage, and he helped build that team up into a true playoff threat and a constant playoff contender. And just the depth of this team, the ability to make trades, the ability to make moves, the ability to just have young players that can start now and start for a long time in the future just screams the Padres could be a true powerhouse for a long time. And uh, the only team is San Diego as well. The only thing I would argue that point is, is the Padres play in a division 
with the Cubs. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the Cubs. I'm sorry. The Dodgers. The Dodgers. Mm-hmm. the Dodgers. I'm sorry. They play in the division with the Dodgers and the Arizona Diamondbacks that are two very, very good teams. And they've been in San Francisco will grow. Obviously, they got to build their farm system up, but they're always good. And Colorado is also always a good team. When you look at the Chicago White Sox, look at the division they're in. They're one of the, they're in the easiest division in professional baseball. It's not even close. Minnesota, Cleveland. Cleveland's rebuilding now. Minnesota, as much as they, they built their pitching staff in the offseason and they added Mahida and, and the players that they have, this is a team that is all power and really they don't hit for average. This is a team that they're the Yankees of really the the mid-2000 era. That's what they are. That's what the Twins are. And you can see they can't beat the Yankees in a playoff run. That's the difference. When you look at the Chicago White Sox, they're in Kansas City. Are they going to be any good for many, many years? Probably not. Detroit, are they going to be good? <laughs> Detroit's no. going to be bad for longer. <laughs> I mean, Cleveland, are they going to be good now? They're trading away uh, Trevor Bauer and all the other pitchers that they had. They're rebuilding, They'll be too. competitive, but they're not going to be a They're force. rebuilding. Yeah. And Minnesota, a team that has a lot of power, their pitching staff is good on paper. They have to prove it in the playoffs, and I don't believe they will. I think the Chicago White Sox have a better, easier run throughout their division than the Padres do. And even if the Twins are still great in certain years, there always seems to be the team that's such an on-and-off team. They're great one year, and then they fall off the next. So the Twins always have seemed to be that team the last couple years as well. Mm -hmm. All right, our next question for you guys. Who was the best player in the first round of the very loaded 2007 NFL draft that's including Calvin Tom- uh, Calvin Johnson, Joe Thomas, Adrian Peterson, Patrick Willis, Marshawn Lynch, Darrell Rivas, and Joe Staley, just some of the big names there. Who do you think was the best player of that group this, and why? This is going to be awesome. All right, so we're talking about the draft that started with the biggest bust of the 2000s in Jamarcus Russell. So probably not going to go Jamarcus Russell. Talk about Adrian Peterson. You got Joe Thomas, Marshawn Lynch, Darrell Revis, no, is that for, yeah, first round, yeah, Darrell Revis. I'm gonna take a player who didn't even play, or who is not even playing anymore. And if you're talking about the best player, not the greatest player, but the best player, the best the, player, the best player in your mind out of that draft, right? And I'm gonna take the best wide receiver that I've ever seen, the best wide receiver that you've ever seen, the most dominant wide receiver during his time. Not longevity. I saw Jerry Rice play, buddy. I saw Jerry Rice play. You don't know Jerry Rice has longevity. But if you have a guy on the left or on the right outside and you say, hey, go catch the ball, there's no one you'd rather take than Calvin Johnson. And that's who I'm going to go with. Megatron was a different beast. He had speed. He had size. He had power. He could go up and get it. He could make the slant. He could take screens to the house. He could do everything you want from a player. And he took a team that I believe was – uh, 0-16 right after he got drafted, and then alongside an actual somewhat decent quarterback in Matthew Stafford because he had a trash quarterback before that, they actually had some some solid runs together. Obviously, the rest of the team didn't allow them to compete in the playoffs or do much damage. But this pure, one player's pure being able to dominate, it's hard to say anyone was at the level that Calvin Johnson was during his prime. I mean, just looking at some of the big names in this draft, you see some really massive game-changing type players, such as Calvin Johnson, Adrian Peterson, and Marshawn Lynch. All three of those players truly define what it was like to be a power player at their position. But when it comes to true dominance, I'm going to have to go with Adrian Peterson. I've watched Adrian Peterson go year in, year out, just dominate one through people's chest and just carry a Minnesota team to success that really did not have business having success. Adrian Peterson is one of the best running backs of all time. In my opinion, he's the favorite running back I've ever seen play the game. 
He just puts pure dominance in year in and year out. And he's still playing the game as of today. Um, he's played for multiple franchises. He's AP. He's all day. They feed him. He's led the league in rushing three times. He had 18 touchdowns back in 2009. I think Adrian Peterson's just a force. Nobody wanted to tackle him for about 15 years. Nobody wanted to get Adrian Peterson's way. And I just think he's just the most dominant force ever to play the running back position from a training standpoint. All righty. So two different answers there. And I think Errol and I have two different answers too. I'm actually going to take this argument a little differently. I'm going to take Joe Thomas. A lot of the guys that, again, offensive linemen, they don't have the numbers to really show that. They, you could look at pancake blocks and stuff like that. But again, Joe Thomas was the best left tackle in the league for basically his entire career on a team that was never good. Just think about that. The Browns have been so dysfunctional. I think they're the worst run organization in any sport. When you look at it, how many bad quarterbacks did they go through? They had some years of decent running backs with a year of Jamal Lewis, the one year of Peyton Hillis. You have some decent years. Isaiah Crowell had one. But again, they really were just so inconsistent, just down just developing players in general. Then Joe Thomas was a force for a long time. He was the steady, durable player. The, fir- the first ye- year he missed a game was his last year in the league. He played seven games. He had a bad injury and he ultimately retired. He played 16 games every year. And again, when you look at the circumstances, just that cannot be stated enough how bad the Browns were, how many coaches, how many bad quarterbacks. And he was the driving force of that offense really the whole time played well amidst all those circumstances. And again, is one of the best tackles you'll ever see. 10-time Pro Bowler, 6-time All-Pro left tackle for a team that was terrible. So I think that's something that ends up getting lost just because the offensive line is not really a statistically dominant position because they don't have the sass to look at outside of pancake blocking. I'm going to go with Darrell Revis, and, and I, I, I followed Darrell Revis. I'm a Jet fan growing up, so I, I had an opportunity to actually meet him and interview him over a couple of times. His dominance at, at the position. Now, you talk about wide receivers. Jerry Rice is the greatest wide receiver I've seen in my, in my eyes. Now, Calvin Johnson was great. He dominated for eight years in the league, but he wasn't even a, the best all-around wide receiver if you compare that. There were a lot of good wide receivers when Calvin Johnson played. Brandon Marshall, if you, if you compare, and I'm not saying he's as good as Calvin Johnson, but if you compare their numbers for five or six years, they're very identical. So I, I'm, I'm not saying Calvin Johnson and Brent, both of them are Hall, Hall of Famers, but Darrell Rivas, go look at what he did at the corner position. When you could try to compare, who could you compare to Darrell Rivas of our time? Charles Woodson? Uh... Deion Sanders. I mean, there are not many guys that play the position. And he transitioned the defensive position at the corner position. You can say whatever you want, Richard Sherman. You could say whatever you want. This guy was the best shut down corner in the league for almost five years. When you ask Calvin Johnson, you ask Andre um Andre Johnson. Andre Johnson. You ask anybody that played wide receiver against him one on one, nobody would throw to that side of the uh, side of the field because of Darrell Revis. Darrell Revis was with the Patriots. So. Could I speak for a second? You spoke enough. Darrell Revis was the most dominant player at a position for almost five years. There was nobody even close to him. Now you talk about Richard Sherman, and Richard Sherman talks up, and, and Peterson. Peterson came out, and Peterson has been the best corner for almost five, five, six years before it transitioned the game. And and Peterson said, Darrell Rivas is the best corner he has ever played against, and he's the best corner that he thinks of all time, even before Deion Sanders. So, again, when you, when you look at dominance, complete dominance, just like when you look at the running back 
back position and Adrian Peterson and what he did at the running back position. Yes, Adrian Peterson of our time has been the most dominant running back. And Calvin Johnson is probably all around, besides Julio Jones, the best wide receiver of our era. Absolutely is. But Darrell Revis, and you can say whatever you want to Richard Sherman Peterson or any corner that's been in the league for the last 10 years, and you try to compare him to this guy at the top of his game, there is no comparison. And Joe Thomas was a great a great uh, offensive lineman, but there were a lot of good offensive linemen playing in the league just like Joe Thomas. So I'm, I'm going to say Darrell Revis because he dominated a position that really he was the first – corner that get that big huge contract at that position so it is Darrell Rivas and what just to go off of that they just showed highlights from a 2009 game of right. Darrell Rivas in his prime covering Calvin Johnson who mm -hmm. I just made the argument for mm him -hmm. to one catch in six yards mm -hmm. yeah it, it's it's unbelievable Calvin Johnson Calvin Johnson did a documentary. I think it was a documentary. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can check it out. And they asked Calvin Johnson, who is the greatest corner that's ever defended you? And he, he looked. He smiled. He looked into the camera. And he said, there's a guy over there in New York that always dominated me on one side and one side only. And his name is DR. And that's all he said. He didn't even say Darrell Reeves. He said DR. So that's Revis Island. Revis Island. So. Mm-hmm. All right, your guys' next question for us. All right, so it's seven forty-six. So this is probably our last. We could question. go. We could. We could go a little further because we started a little bit late. We can go if you guys are rushing. Uh, two hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So here's probably the best question that can help the viewers. A lot of people are making bets on who they think is going to win it all this year. So our question to you in the NFL season, who is going to win the Super Bowl? It's an interesting question. Mm. Wow. Go ahead, Speedy. I, I know we're going to have different answers on this one. All right. I'll start, and I'll, I'll go with the New Orleans Saints. I think when you look at the New Orleans Saints, those storylines are all there. You look at them just getting robbed and, again, mentally rattled at times in the playoffs in the past but again, I think when you look at just the circumstances, they're getting healthier now. They were 13-3 and with Drew Brees out half the year. And again, they were still dominant. Again, they had that one dud game against Atlanta, but that was really it. They really dominated in many different circumstances with Kamara hurt, a lot of defensive players hurt, and now they're all healthy again. They, their draft was okay. I don't think it was great, but they still had a decent offseason. They bring in Emmanuel Sanders for leadership. And again, Drew Brees, I mean, when is it going to be his time? When are the Saints finally get the, going to get the benefit of the doubt? You look at the Chiefs last year, all the playoff wacky losses they had, and, and, and the Saints are kind of going through that same thing. Now the Chiefs finally overcame those circumstances. Andy Reid finally won one, and now you're going to see, I think, I think you have the best chance of seeing it. Everyone's talking about the Buccaneers. That has to get in their head. That has to say, all right, that has to fire them up more when you look at the New Orleans Saints, and they because they know they're better, and they know Tampa's going to get all this attention, and I think that really makes a difference, and I think they have a chance now to get a number one seed. Their schedule is a little easier than it was last year. NFC North, a lot of those teams got worse. You look at the AFC West. I mean, they have the Chiefs, but again, the rest are all kind of young teams that are we don't know what they're going to be. So they have a chance to be the number one seed, and they're next to impossible to beat at home without help from the referees. 
at home in the postseason. So I'm going to take the Saints. I'm taking, and this is there's no argument to this. The Baltimore Ravens adding uh, Campbell and, and Derek Wolf this offseason, solidifying their 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 their, their, their powerful defensive line. Their secondary is one of the most underrated secondaries in all of football. Their their experience, the offensive line, which was one of the best offensive lines in football. Their running game, the three headed monster last year, was one of the best running games in the league. And they have Hollywood Brown that really dominated in the second half of the season. This is a team that's destined to win a championship. Earl Thomas, this is they're so stacked from top to bottom. Their defense, their special teams, their special teams was ranked third in the league last year. And Lamar Jackson, and you could say whatever you want, he became a completion type of quarterback. And if he can make the throws that he made last year and figure out things in the playoffs, which he hasn't done for the last two years, he's a young player and he's trying, he's starting to develop his skill as a, as a player. And they added J.K. Dobson, J.K. Dobson, uh, Dobbins, I'm sorry, Dobbins. And, and everything like that. This team is stacked from top to bottom. Mark, Mark Ingram. I'm looking at their team right now. Tell me the weakness of this team. There is no weakness of this team. Their guard position, their wide receiving position, even their depth. You know who their depth for, fourth, fifth wide receiver on their team is? Willie Sneed. Okay? Willie Sneed is their fourth or fifth wide receiver on this team. This team is stacked from top to bottom, and they're in a very, very to my my eyes, the weakest division in professional in, in the NFL this year. Go look at their team. You guys like Pittsburgh. I don't like Pittsburgh this year, especially with Ben Roethlisberger coming back from a major injury. The Browns, they have a great, talented team. I don't think they're going to be any good this year as well because I don't trust Baker Mayfield. And the Bengals, <laughs> give me a break. The AFC is the weakest is the weakest in all the divisions when you when you talk about the NFC and the AFC. Who's going to challenge them besides Kansas City? Nobody in the AFC. So I'm going to take Baltimore by a landslide. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you, Aaron, and go Baltimore. I think when it comes to Baltimore, I think they have so much depth and they're just a dominant team overall. When you think about the running game, they have Mark Ingram, and obviously I really love J.K. Dobbins. I think that was a great value pick at where they got him in the third round, I believe, second round. Mm-hmm. They got Lamar. The only downfall of this team is Lamar Jackson. If Lamar Jackson gets hurt, then obviously that's easy for any team when it comes to a quarterback. So it really all is on the shoulders of Lamar Jackson. But I'm huge on Marquise Brown. And I think Miles Boykin is going to take a big jump this year. But I think even though they have young receivers, I think they have a lot of talent there. You go to tight end. I mean, they got Boyle and they got Mark Andrews dominant. The O line's really good, but they're going to have to work on uh, replacing Marshall Yonder, the longtime All Pro who retired this all season. But they have two bookends and Ronnie Stanley and Orlando Brown. I mean, you go to the defense, they picked up one of the best edge rushers in the league by getting Kalias Campbell. And the only question on the defense is really the linebacker room, where they have a rookie in Patrick Queen, Patrick Queen and an unproven fan, LJ Ford. But, I mean, they have the best cornerback tandem, I believe, in the league, with Marcus Peters locking on one side of the field and Marlon Humphrey on the other. And they even still have Jimmy Smith and Tavon Young, who gets injured quite often. And hopefully they retain, they hold on to Earl Thomas, despite the people jumping but I think from top to bottom, this is the best defensive team, one of the best defensive teams. They have an ongoing offense. It's one of the best offenses in the league, and they have one of the best tools in the NFL. So I think if a team that can do it, it's the Ravens. It's a team that's been there before, but just younger now, but they still have the right pieces. Yeah, the Ravens are a great pick, and Errol, you said something that stuck out to me. It is inevitable to me that the Ravens will win a Super Bowl. I just don't know if it's going to come this year. I think Lamar Jackson is – Proven or has not proven that he can succeed in the playoffs is obviously 0-2. I think for him, for you to go into a season and expect him to win 
three playoff games at least because that's what it takes to win a Super Bowl. And now only one team gets a bye, and it'll probably be, if we're going to guess, you know, Kansas City at this point. But so he might have to win four playoff games. So for a guy to go from 0-2 to now 4-0, I think would be a big jump. I would probably be more comfortable in seeing him win at least one playoff game before expecting him to win a Super Bowl. And so that's why I'm going to agree with Speedy and go with the Saints and go with the guy in Drew Brees who has proven he can win a Super Bowl. Go with a coach in Sean Payton who, like John Harbaugh, has proven he can win a Super Bowl. And this is a team who I'm going to make an interesting take that might be the clip that gets recorded they haven't been able to win the big one ever since the conspirator, the whole bounty gate scenario that happened. And it's interesting to think that that might be what's contributed to being screwed over multiple times in the playoffs, whether it be refereeing or a terrible play or unluck karma is what you can call it. And it's like Stevie said, you know, there's going to be a point where that karma doesn't come back and haunt them and they are able to overcome. We saw it with Andy Reid finally able to win the big one. And New Orleans just seems like a team who's been on the cusp, have had the most talented team year in and year out, but for some reason just finds a way to lose in the playoffs, whether it's their fault or league or whatever you want to blame it on. And they have, they're coming back again with an even more talented team. They Your time is up, Rob. They added Emmanuel Sanders. What is, what is this, like Brandon and me versus you and Speedy? Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're, we're now going tag teams. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the debate debate war where we don't know which side we're going to be on. <laughs> yeah, the war is inside the war. It's the war room out here. It's the war room. <laughs> Go ahead, Speedy. All right, this one probably will be a little more back to normal with the sides we picked. Which MVP season in the NBA was better? Steph Curry's unanimous MVP season or Russell Westbrook's MVP season in 2016-2017 where he averaged a triple-double for the entire year? All right, so I think this is, uh, looking at times, probably our last one. Go ahead, go ahead. Give Steph Curry all the credit you want to give him so we can sink you like a bug. Come on. I wish, see, I wish you didn't say that because I was going to throw the meanest curveball and just go with Russell Westbrook just because I knew you were going to also say Russell Westbrook. But let's be honest. This guy won unanimous MVP for a reason. He won 73 games, something Russell Westbrook didn't even come close to in his MVP year. Obviously, you know, he had much better teammates and a better coach and everything like that. But he completely changed the game that season. This guy shot, I'm sorry, this guy made 400 threes. Before that, no one's ever made more than 300 except himself. He made 100 more three-pointers in one year. He took a jump we've never even seen before, and he did it at such a level that beyond stats, beyond numbers, forget all that. When I'm watching the game and I'm watching these two players play, Russell Westbrook, who has the stats, and really that's his only argument, the fact that he gets triple-doubles because he has the stats on rebounds and assists, etc. or I'm just watching a player dominate, you see Steph Curry shoot the ball, it takes the light out of the other team. He goes on these curry flurries in the third quarter. That was the year he started doing that. And it just completely takes the life out of the team. He'll go on a 20-0 run himself, and he'll put his team in a great position to win. And he was the only player who can say that he led a team to 73 wins. No other player in the history of basketball can say that they led a team to 73 wins. So to say that any player, or I'm sorry, to say that Russell Westbrook's MVP season where he added stats is better than Seth Curry, who led his team and dominated and led him to wins, I think would be foolish. I think this is a pretty easy uh, conversation. I think it's clearly Steph. When you think about the things that Steph's done that nobody else has done, there's multiple things. He's made the most three-pointers of all time, 400-plus. 
He's the first unanimous MVP of all time. And he led his team to 73 wins, the most of all time. Steph literally changed the game that year. He literally changed the way that fans look at shooting three-pointers and the way that fans approach the game. And when it comes to Russell Westbrook, Russell Westbrook, he's not even the first player of all time to average a triple double in a season. Oscar Robinson was the first player. So he didn't do anything that we've never seen before. And like Rob said, he takes terrible shots. He He's passing stats. I mean, he, he does a little bit too much for me. He's not efficient enough. When it came to Steph Curry, he's the unanimous MVP for a reason. He broke multiple records. Uh, I think it's clear. Yeah, so bring up all the numbers you want to bring up to support your argument. That's all it is. Uh, go ahead, Speedy, because I got a lot to give to you guys. All right. So both of us are going to take Russell Westbrook here. And I think when you look at it, the most impressive thing you have to look at for a guy averaging a triple-double a year is it's a point guard. It's not a. It's not your LeBron James. It's not Anthony Davis. It's not a guy like that. It's a point guard getting 10.7 rebounds a year. Yeah, okay, you could say it's stat padding to some extent. Every player stat pads in the NBA. I'm sure Steph Curry has too. He's taken extra threes in order to get that record up in certain times in the game. I didn't watch every game of that season, but I'm sure he did that. And when you look at Westbrook getting 10.7 rebounds a game is really impressive. And not to mention, he played on a team that year that just lost Kevin Durant. And who gained Kevin Durant? The Warriors. So Steph Curry gains Kevin Durant in that instance. And he begged Kevin Durant. Right. He begged Kevin Durant to come and play so, with him. So who was Russell Westbrook's next next best player? Serge Ibaka was traded too that year. So his next best player was Steven Adams. Andre Roberson's an offensive liability who plays a lot because of his defense. Speedy's favorite. So then you got who? Uh, a young DeMontis Sabonis. I mean, who else was really on that team? Jeremy Lamb, guys like that. That's who Russell Westbrook was getting 10.4 assists a game to in addition to 31.6 points per game. You have to be able to shoot a little to get 31.6 points per game. It's not just all driving in the hoop. So, yeah, you can knock the efficiency all you want. He's not playing with guys that are also shooters, too. He's playing with inside scorers and, again, guys that are defensive players more than anything else. So, I think it's definitely Russell. And, and first of all, you guys talk about uh, what, um, I'm sorry, Steph Curry. Steph Curry did as an MVP, winning it all out. Just, just remember that Russell Westbrook did win an MVP. And again, he's an eight-time All-NBA player to Steph Curry's six-time All-NBA player. And you look at their numbers. This guy averages a triple-double every single game. Now you talk about, yeah, Steph Curry, he plays with all the great players, Klay Thompson and Draymond Green and all the players. And even their bench is one of the best benches in basketball. Go look at the bench of Russell Westbrook. Even look when they were winning. With Kevin Durant and um, Baca. Uh, Baca and what's Adams. his name? And, yep. No, the other one uh, from the Rockets, uh, Harding. They, oh. the, when you talk about Russell Westbrook and his development as a player and even as a leader, he never left. He didn't want to leave OKC. He wanted to stay there. OKC traded him to the Rockets. He didn't want out of there. Kevin Durant wanted out of there. And you talk about Steph Curry and the greatness of what Steph Curry has done. Steph Curry is a great three-point shooter. Look at all-around game. You talk about assists. This is a guy who won a two-time assist champion. He's a two-time assist champion. Did By the way, did Steph Curry ever win an assist? Was he ever an assist champion? No. Now, Steph Curry won two MVPs to... Um, Westbrook's to won, yeah. Westbrook's one, and you also is a, Westbrook is also a two-time All-Star MVP. You 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 talk about and you go back and forth and you compare and contrast both players. Numbers don't lie, and and you can see it. Last year, 
Russell Westbrook averaged 47.4 field goal percentage. That was his that was uh, to Steph Curry's 40.4 for the little bit of time that he did play. The year before that, Russell Westbrook had a better field goal percentage in a whole season than Steph Curry did. And you talk about three-point shooting. Yes, he is not a three-point shooter that Steph is. Who is? Who is? I mean, Ray Allen, Reggie Miller, there is there are not many guys and he's a great three-point shooter, but that's his game. He's a great ball handler, that's what he is, and he's a great shooter. Defensively, he stinks. I'm sorry. He's not a great defender. He's a, he could steal the ball, but he's not an all-around great great defensive player. Russell Westbrook's amongst the top 3 defensive point guards in the NBA. And so that is your time. Ah, man. I That's a good that argument. I knew that one would fire you up. You know, and Kyrie Irving, too. I, I mean, a lot of people, people, and I know Kyrie is a cancer, but Kyrie Irving is a, a fantastic point guard. He really is. I just don't think he gets the credit that he deserves because he's got a big mouth and he causes a lot of trouble off, on and off the field. And also, uh, John Wall, before he got hurt, I loved John Wall. I remember that argument you had with Vinny. One yeah. of the first shows I was on, you were arguing John Wall was better than Steph Curry, and you made him mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that, because at the time, John Wall was, he was a double-double and at the point guard position and played for the Washington Wizards. And Bradley Beal was a young player at the time. He really wasn't developed like he is now. So John Wall was the best player on the team, and, and he put a lot of pressure on him. And, and by the way, John Wall can't shoot threes. He had to work on that. Foul shooting, he came to the league. He was a terrible foul shooter. So uh, I, I, there was a lot, there's a lot of good point guards. And, and to say, and I, I hated when you said Steph Curry uh, from Michael Jordan when you, you were talking about offensive players. I'm sorry. LeBron James is a much better all-around offensive player than Seth Curry. I'm sorry. It's not even close. LeBron James, he can't shoot the threes like Steph, but all-around offensive game, Steph can't do what LeBron James could do. He can. And look at the playoffs. Steph Curry is not a great playoff player. Look at LeBron James. Besides Michael Jordan, who has the numbers to compare to Michael Jordan in the playoffs? The only person that is is LeBron James. So you can you can argue your points how great Steph Curry is, and he's a great shooter. I love Steph Curry as a shooter. But all-around games, I'm sorry. I'm taking Russell Westbrook over him as a point guard. And LeBron James, LeBron James should have won the MVP that year that he, he shot 403-point shots. He should have won. He averaged almost 29 points that year and eight rebounds and nine assists. And this guy is a power forward or a three or a two or a one. He plays four or five different positions. And he should have won Defensive Player of the Year that year too. So I, I'm sorry. They don't give it to LeBron James because they. that's the problem with the NBA. I think Michael Jordan should have won the MVP almost eight, really 10 or 12 years in a row, but he never did. LeBron, I think Michael Jordan won, I think six, he won MVPs. six MVPs, and I think he won like five in six years at yeah. one point. So. Michael Jordan should have won an MVP every single year. The yeah. fact that LeBron James didn't win an MVP every single year is just—it's really just it doesn't make sense. Because I think as well there was—I uh, think there was a stretch. I think between 90, 1987 and nineteen ninety four or something like that, where every MVP was either him or Magic Johnson. Too. I, I, w- I, w- I know you guys, and I, I don't know if you guys—I know you guys are Steph fans. But if you go look at LeBron James's numbers, and and I know there's a lot of Kobe lovers out there that try to compare LeBron James to Kobe Bryant, it's not even close. Go look at LeBron James from the starting of his career all the way to now. He averaged 20 points a game his first year, Rookie of the Year, 27, 31, 27, 30, 28, 29, 26, 27, 26, 27, 25, 25, 26, 27, 27, 25. I mean, come on. The only person that has better numbers than LeBron James offensively does in, in his career 
is Michael Jordan. That's the only guy. And who will break Michael Jordan every single regular season and postseason record by the time LeBron James is over? He will have almost every single offensive and defensive record in the NBA. That is a guarantee. It's uh, unbelievable what this guy has done. And I am not a LeBron James fan. And I, I'll tell you this right now. As great as he was, and they're, they're trying to make a Space Jams too with him, it makes me sick to my stomach because you can't compare LeBron James to Michael Jordan because I won't compare anybody to Michael Jordan. He is the greatest athlete to ever play this, you know, in, in, in professional sports and basketball as a game. Yeah, no, that was, that was one of the great things about this documentary is that it signed a light on the greatness of Michael Jordan. And obviously everyone likes to make that debate. And I think being able to witness, you know, firsthand all the greatness that Jordan accomplished and just the different level that he was on for a majority of his career, um, I think really put that argument, you know, in a different stance. Uh, I got to say, though, this, this was a lot of fun, guys. I know we enjoyed ourselves. Uh, sorry, I know we got to go, but this was this was a lot of fun. Looking forward to, uh, you know, how we proceed from here. So Absolutely. Um, Next time, we're going to get you guys mics, and we're going pl- to plug it in USB so it sounds a little bit more clear. So then we can banter back and forth where there's no echo or reverb sound. So what we'll, what we'll do is we'll figure out something where you guys can get a USB, plug it right into your computer, and it should work. And we should have no problem. Yeah, someone's got to keep you in check over there. You know? <laughs> well, this guy does, even though he annoys the hell out of me sometimes. <laughs> Brandon, Rob, thank you for joining us, guys. No, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Guys, that's PSO. They're great. If you want to check them out, you can go to their website at prosportsoutlook.com. At PSO underscore sports. It's a great, great. Go to their Instagram. The content that they have is great. Love what they do. Really, moving forward, we're looking to working, looking forward to working with them in the near future. It's it's incredible when when you think of professional sports and debating arguments, and nobody's fully right. Okay, not them, not us. Nobody's you know fully right because you can argue your points, and statistics don't lie. But it's all in the eye. Everybody has their own thoughts to professional sports and arguing their points from college basketball to college football to even professional sports. I, I think they had a lot of good points. I think in a lot of ways they, they argued their asses off. And, and I think in a lot of the debates, in certain debates, they did beat us in, in the debates. I won't, I won't argue that point, and I, I'm, I'm not thinking anything wrong or different from them. I think they're great. And, and guys, you got to check out their website. I really like their website. Check it out, prosportsoutlook.com. Remember, guys, Below the Mic is live every single Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Check us out. I want to apologize to all the fans for the echoes and the reverbs that happens uh, when you have back-and-forth back and forth banter. Uh, we will work on that. This will happen again. We will do this again. It will be fun. And um, looking forward to it. These guys are great. They really do. They give us so much information back and forth banter i i i enjoyed it immensely but um we will be back on monday guys down to the wire we have a couple of great guests next week we have a couple of college sports uh coaches that are going to join us next week some ex-nfl players joining us next week as well so we're looking forward to that uh remember guys you can follow us by going to our website at www.worldwidesportsradio.com go to our app guys download our app if you don't have it on ios wwsrn and guys on the android worldwide sports radio network yes worldwide sports radio network until next week this is errol marks and speedy pd and pso saying good night And we'll talk to you then. Good night, everybody. 
It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.